Welcome to The Dish, a podcast about 90s action movies where we compare the movies to dishes, hosted by a couple of guys who don't know too much about movies or the culinary arts. I am one of your hosts, Zach. I'm another one of your hosts, Mitch. <laughs> Hi, Mitch. That was uh, quite a pre-pod hangout we just had. We were in a silent film for a minute there. Mitch and I typically record in the same room together looking at each other on the way over this time i said hey why don't we just uh you know get started immediately when i get there so we can capture the haven't seen each other in a while energy because it's been probably three four weeks since i've seen you dude dude yeah it has been and i got in and we kind of just had a unspoken agreement we wouldn't talk until we started recording <laughs> yeah it was uh the energy was boiling over i feel like <laughs> we got more and more animated the closer we got to recording <laughs> and the technical difficulties were not uh making it any better <laughs> yeah something was downloading it took about like five ten minutes of us just sitting here staring <laughs> making strange faces yes gesturing with animals how are you doing dude i'm doing pretty good man i'm doing pretty good uh I rewatched our movie for today again last night. Uh, this was a movie that Zach had never seen before, and it is known to him that it is one of my absolute favorite movies. Spoiler alert. So we watched it together a few weeks ago. It has been weeks, so we watched it just raw, no note-taking, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera, just to enjoy the movie, because I really wanted you to, to see it and enjoy it. Yeah, I watched it last night with from a professional perspective, and I'm raring to go, man. Nice. Sounds good, dude. How are you, my friend? Okay. Um, had a rough week, as you know, for reasons I won't go into in the pod, but more or less grad school related stuff. No whole number of issues, but man. You left the lab last night with uh, marked progress, though, did you not? Uh, somewhat. I got home last night at like 11-ish. I had my dinner at 11.30 p.m. <laughs> and then pr- proceeded to watch all of The Fifth Element. Oh, wow. So you made it through, huh? I, I made it through. Uh, nice. So I rewatched, got notes. And here we are, less than 12 hours later, recording. Yes, much less. It's been so long since I've been here. Or maybe it's I'm just so out of it mentally right now, but I took a wrong turn on the way here. Really? Wow. Yes. I haven't done that for years, probably. That's all good. You found it. All roads lead to Mitch's house. I got down to the place on Capitol where you're supposed to turn left. I did a U-turn, thinking I'd gone too far. It always feels so far coming here. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but <laughs> I made it. I enjoyed hearing about your your lab work last night. It was pretty cool to get a glimpse into the, the professional life of Zach. And I don't know if I ever told you this before, but it's pretty dang cool that you get to like go fuck about in a lab as your job for a while. I know fuck about's like I'm not trying to uh, belittle what you do or, or make fun of it. It's, it's really cool. I mean, that's what it is sometimes, especially like the very early stage where you're just kind of figuring out how something works. It yeah. really is just fucking around. And then you get more and like, you know, you're optimizing, but it really does. It is cool when you're just working on something new, just to like see what works, see what doesn't. You really are just farting around, poking at stuff. On the scale of fucking around the lab, where would you say you are in comparison to Hamindra? Oh man, he is on a totally different level. <laughs> I mean, I, I've never watched him in lab, but the stories I've heard from him of stuff that happens and safety stories and him like blowing circuits out, causing all sorts of mayhem in Floods, labs as a most recent example i'm an apex predator among the marine life forms he creates worrying machines of death he has he ha- he built a machine he had to put in a cage because it's so dangerous <laughs> <laughs> for reference Hamindra is our mutual friend also a friend of the pod who we refer to often as a chaos agent he's just kind of uh 
He's a really fun guy, great guy, but I sometimes think his psyche is a random number generator or, or something to that effect. Basically, yeah. He, um, I think he's kind of on our safety guys, like, special list of people to pay attention to. He's got hidden cams in the lab. Oh, yeah. Like it, Almost definitely. It's like a baby monitor for Hemindra's lab. Just, hey, what are you doing with that? <laughs> he has so many ideas that he uh, would constantly tell his advisor, hey, we should try this. We should try this. We should try this. That his advisor finally told him, maybe you should keep some of the ideas to yourself. <laughs> no. <laughs> I believe in you, Hemindra. I'm sure you're doing great work. He spills a lot of these ideas over to his friends, and he, he quotes that what he tells us are his bad ideas, and only 1% of his ideas are bad. The 99% he keeps up in his head so that no one can steal his IP. The possibilities are limitless, really. Of course. <laughs> of course. In true Hamindra fashion. I'm sure he, if, if this makes it in, he's going to be like so happy to hear his name dropped. Oh, yeah. I know he's uh, one of our most voracious listeners. Maybe our biggest fan. <laughs> the only person who's told, who's admitted to me that he's listened to episodes multiple times. Oh, Alex hasn't? I don't think Alex has listened to him multiple oh, times. Oh, wow. Okay. Alex, you're also great. <laughs> I wonder if he'll be weirded out about us talking about him, because it's not like we're talking about just some random John, which is like a very common name. There's not that many Hemendras floating around. Right. People can very easily probably find out who he is if they know who I am. Right. I don't know that we have a lot of listeners with the name Hemendra. So I went to get my car service the other day. How dare you not call me? <laughs> I needed, I got an oil change and a uh -huh. tire rotation. Oh yeah. I don't know if you remember me telling you, the other day I was sitting in line to get a COVID test for hours. And at one point my car, car started- cut off, right? Almost, it sounded like it almost that like latent engine running noise started kind of gurgling and emitting weird, weird noises. My car was 2018, so it shouldn't be weird. Unless you haven't changed the oil since 2018. Right. Well, I was sitting in my car one day, I was like- I don't know what I was doing, but I just happened to look up at that little sticker on the top left side of your windshield. <laughs> and I saw it said, change oil at 19,000 miles. And I'm at about 30. And it's not horrific. Yeah. But it's like, well, maybe I should do you that. You still drive it a lot. I went through a whole winter. Traditional belief is you change your oil every 5,000 miles. Some people say every 3,000 miles. But with oil technology advancing and cars being better at lubricating and cleaning themselves and whatnot, 5,000 miles is like as far as you want to go. Unless you drive a car with a turbo, which yours might have a turbo. No, it doesn't. doesn't? Okay. So you you think 5,000 miles is the max you want to go? I would, unless you specifically buy like a long, oh. long life oil. I always assumed it was kind of like shampoo, where shampoo says like, use once every day and like, you know, use it twice. Lather, rinse, and repeat. And do that every day. Or it's like, you don't, I don't even use shampoo every day. I use shampoo once every three days or something. No, no, no. It's very different with an engine that <laughs> needs lubrication at a certain viscosity and frequency. I just figured it was them trying to sell more oil. No, it's, it's not really. It's actual tolerances in the motors. So yeah, did your mechanic like come out and like shake his head at you or anything? Or Well, I mean, I went to... I have a Kia. So I went to the Kia dealer. When I bought my car in 2018, I got like X number six or whatever of free services, which includes okay. oil change and tire rotation. Okay. I understand you're going there because it was free. And I called I and I, ha I had a free one. I had three free ones left actually. So I just went there. So I wouldn't say I have a mechanic. It's just like, kind of like, it's like the McDonald's of a mechanic. It's fine. Like, I just felt just betrayed for a second. Do it and then give you a, I'm sorry, Mitch. It's fine. <laughs> they give you like a little report sheet at the end where like, you know, here's the shit wrong with your car. And everything seemed fine. But while I'm sitting there, my service representative, this is on a Friday. It's now Sunday for those not in the know because this is going to come out later. He said, got any fun plans this weekend? 
I had no plans this weekend really to speak of socially except for this. Uh-huh. And in that moment, I kind of felt embarrassed to be admitting, <laughs> oh, I'm like, I record a podcast with my friend where we talk about 90s movies. It's kind of a mix of embarrassment and then just not wanting to have to explain it, which would even be more embarrassing. And so I just said, oh, you know, we're just, I'm just kind of doing like a movie marathon with some friends. Oh, you lied. And he said, oh, what movies? It's like, oh, shit. Uh, <laughs> what do I say? What do I say? And so I just, I kind of said like what we do for the pod. Like, oh, just like, you know, a bunch of 90s action movies. Uh, He's like, oh, what, what action movies? It's like, oh. Uh. <laughs> I was like, oh, you know, like Point Break, uh, Fifth Element. Um, Jurassic Park. That was one we hadn't done yet, obviously. But for some reason, that moment talking to a stranger, I felt a little like I don't want to reveal what my sole social plans are this weekend, which is this pod. You don't want to admit that the one thing you had planned is to record a podcast that nobody listens to. Right. <laughs> our listenership is just our friends. Yeah, pretty much. And like one dude in Al- Albania. Apparently. I haven't seen him in the analytics recently. I want to say or that her. he listened... To the most recent episode, because I think when I checked it, here, I'll pull it up. When I when I checked it like last week, um, there was a ping from Albania again. I was like, ah, oh, shit, we've no retained way. a listener. I think, I think it's hilarious though that you you were too embarrassed to delve into what our podcast is. I've actually told a lot of people, strangers. Yeah. Oh, really? I told my PA. I've told several people just in in like passing conversation. I, maybe I have less shame than you, <laughs> but uh, I'm I'm happy to share it in the event that someone might actually like it and listen to it. But I also don't want to like ramble on about this thing that I do to the effect of them like not wanting to listen to it because I'm clearly a, a strange man. <laughs> have you ever? Do you think you've ever gotten a listener from it? Have they ever said like, "Oh, what's the name?" and pulled it up like with you watching or something? I had one person actually pull out their phone and write it down. Oh, wow. Okay. And so I was like, oh, sweet. Maybe they'll actually listen. I have no idea if they did. So, yeah, like, I don't know. No one there was wearing masks. I just kind of wanted to get out of there. Just some element in the whole situation of, like, kind of slight pod shame and being uncomfortable. I just kind of wanted to, like, you know, yep, I don't have any plans. All right, bye. <laughs> well, there is an element that you should never feel shame about, Zach, and that's the fifth element, <laughs> which is today's topic of the dish. Wait, I thought there were only four elements. What if I told you there was a fifth and it was love? (laughs) (laughs) This is true. I watched The Fifth Element only for the purpose of the podcast. Not saying I didn't want to enjoy it, but I hadn't watched it before being contractually obligated by The Dish. You would have been contractually obligated by our friendship if not (laughs) this podcast. So (laughs) So I, I watched it once as stipulated by our friendship. And then again last night as stipulated by the terms of The Dish. And I got to say, I liked it more the second pass. Yes. We'll get to that. Yeah. I want to hear all about I, it. I haven't. This is not in absolute terms. I haven't said whether I like it or not. I just said I liked it more. <laughs> so I haven't revealed too much yet. Hopefully a net positive in the end. Yeah. Well, yeah. shit, dude. Do you want to just dive in? Dude, I so do. Oh, my fly's down. I don't want to dive in there. <laughs> <laughs> Let's dive in. This is a movie directed by Luke Besson, who is French. Um, I can believe it. His name is L-U-C. I'm pretty sure and he's Besson French. sounds yeah. French-ish. He is a pretty prolific director at this point. Screenwriter, producer. He is indeed French. By heritage or actually from France? Actually French. Oh, actually nice. from France. He's 62 now. Born in 59. Anyway, this is like his... 
Luke Besson sci-fi epic that had been rolling around in his head for a long ass time. You told me a, an age at which he started writing this. I think it's probably fair to say exactly how long it's been rolling around in his head. So he was 16, like in high school, when he wrote this, the original screenplay. I don't think he actually started working on it until he was like 38. This is a, a script that's basically 20 plus years in the making. Yeah. And I think the movie was worked on for around nine. This one guy's brainchild, basically. Yeah. He already had artists commissioned and working on the like art and lore and world like nine years before the release, like in, in the 90s, early 90s. It gives a lot of interesting perspectives and angles knowing that to look at choices in the movie and what might have influenced or what could have like, because there's a whole world in this two hours, like 20 years. Truly. And like, I don't know how he was able to paint his vision, this 20 year vision in a two hour movie. Dude, it's incredible, isn't it? I think originally it was going to be a trilogy, but he ended up condensing it down into one movie, which... I could totally go for Fifth Element Trilogy, but given the fact that he did it in one, bravo. Like, I'm probably going to hark on this a million times during this pod, but I love the world that he created and how lived in it feels throughout. It's so cool. Let's get into it, and we can um, happen across some of these concrete examples and delve into them. Hell yeah. So I guess I'll kick us off. When I first watched it, I was kind of surprised. Well, I was kind of struck by the intro. It felt so horror it gave me mad event horizon vibes. Oh, like the very beginning when it's like zooming along an asteroid It's just belt. space. There's asteroids flying by. It's kind of horror music. I saw Gary Oldman and Ian Holmes names and I was like, okay, like there are some fucking yeah, like heavy hitters in this movie. It's going to, this is like maybe a little horror in here too. I was wrong. You were mistaken. <laughs> <laughs> but I, yeah, it was just, I was struck by it again. The second time I watched it, I, I just got like incredible 90s space horror vibes which is such a fun genre in and of itself the feeling that this film elicits with its music and its setup for different scenes and different like plot points i think is is so great like it's the tone setting is incredible yeah and the transition between tones the first two scenes well the intro may or may not be a scene probably not and then the next scene we jump into which just kind of like Quickly summarizing, it's you know the, the scene in Egypt with the archaeologists. We can go into more details later. Those are both really good. The scene in the temple starts off really good, and then it goes to corn pretty quickly. It goes to well, maybe not corn, camp pretty quickly. It gets pretty campy. Embrace the camp, Zach. <laughs> Embrace it. So what's happening in this first scene is we cut to Egypt. Before even Egypt, we from the asteroid belt, we zoom in and we see a galaxy and then a planet, presumably Earth with a giant ship in orbit. And then we cut to Egypt. I'm going to be I'm going to be a stickler in this one. I apologize. This is going to be a 5-hour review, you guys. It is. Luke Besson, uh, I'm going to try to do you right here. <laughs> and there's what I guess we interpret to be an archaeologist reading kind of the equivalent of hieroglyphics, it's just images carved into a wall, and he's realizing that there are four elements needed to make some prophecy come true. It's not really clear. But he, he realizes, wait, there's a fifth element. There's, I guess, a lot of interpretations of what's on the wall here. He reads, everyone has missed one thing. There's a fifth thing that is needed in this whole equation. And as he blurts out, there's a fifth element. There's kind of a, um, a guy in robes, looks kind of like maybe a priest, who seems to think that no one can know there is a fifth element. And, and uh, has a little vial of poison that he 
walks up to the archaeologist. They have a cordial relationship and he gives him a glass of water with some of the poison in it to try and silence him. Going to be famous. Then, then let, us, let us toast your fame. To fame. Salute. You can't drink a toast with water. In my sack, the ground. Right about the time that they're about to toast to this, the ship, I guess, that we saw before shows up and blasts the interior of this temple with light. Throughout this whole movie, there's so much fun going on. There's so many little subplots. Aziz, light! Much better. Thank you, Aziz. At that point, these beetle aliens come out. They looked like beetles to me from the rear. I don't know what you would describe them as. I describe them in my notes as metal barneys with an earthworm gym head. <laughs> they they have the shape of an extraordinary like dad bod. They're like these pear-shaped metal aliens with these tiny little ant heads. It's like layers of carapace, but it's like metallic. They almost look like they're partially uh, mechanical or like cyborg-esque. I don't know. I they had the like the the tone and the music and everything and their their the tone of their voices, which is kind of a low metallic growl yeah. kind of intimidating but they looked kind of ridiculous and i wasn't sure if that was the intent i think probably they they look entirely alien like something we would never expect to be a life form spray painted gold but they're not a life form aren't they it's a it's a metal shell i don't know are they they don't seem to be organic but they also they kind of hobble along they don't have the dexterity that you would expect a like artificial being to have but uh the archaeologist, as they're walking in, is you know using his newfound light to revel in his discovery once more, talking about these four elements that, that will be gathered around a fifth element and how it's depicted uh, as a perfect being. Like a battle plan. Here's the good. Here's the evil. And here, a weapon against evil. And as he like turns around to ask what his intern, I guess, or the priest thinks, He's standing face to face with one of these aliens. Uh, 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 are you German? <laughs> and uh, the priest is talking to them, saying, "Why are you here?" And they're they're saying, "They're here to take the stones that they aren't safe on Earth because war is coming." And so they pull out a, this little key from one of their fingers and open up this big wall that the archaeologist has been reading. This stone wall opens up, and they go in. And inside are the four stones presumably the four elements all surrounded around a statue in the middle that is somewhat humanoid looking with its with its head tilted back screaming towards the sky and so they go in and they grab all this stuff and they're taking it out all the while billy the intern is losing his shit i guess he's just so scared and paranoid he pulls out a gun from his pack and ends up tripping over his pack his gun goes off the auto lockout procedure is triggered and the waddling alien can't get the last one that's in there can't get out quick enough and all the while, the priest is shouting at him, like, you got to hurry up. And the alien's like, no, that's not important. What's important is life and that you continue your mission to pass down your knowledge to the subsequent priests. And so the scene ends with him running out to the ship that's lifting up into the sky and shouting that he'll fulfill his mission. And as he does this, it zooms in on, like, the carving of the three planets and how they're, like, in this triangular shape. And then it immediately cuts to a futuristic screen with those, that same, those same shapes coming into focus. And it's 300 years later. Boy, we are going scene by scene for this movie, aren't we? I will try to calm down. <laughs> <laughs> I 
could see you looking at me like he's just gonna keep on going, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, these these aliens, I just almost couldn't accept that these were the keepers of the stones. Like I, I feel like they could have done a better job with the costume design here. Because they just looked so kind of poorly put together. <laughs> I can see that, and like I do remember thinking the way that the heads moved, and you could almost see like the spray paint drips and stuff. They uh, they don't hold up as well as as some of the other things in the movie do. Perhaps it's the HD that we get to uh, enjoy in 2022 that yeah that puts that on blast. With all your with your mind boggling amount of research, do you know what if this movie had a huge budget? It did. It was the biggest French action movie budget of its time. I think even just like of the 90s. Yes. So yeah, we're in um, 2200 something. I'm not sure what the year is exactly. Roughly 300 years later. Oh, so this is the previous scene was 1900 something. It was 1914. Yeah. 2200 something. Yeah. <laughs> 2200 ish. The evil is here. And it appears as basically a giant fireball. It's a giant fire planet. Or maybe it might not be big enough to be considered a planet if I'm being astronomy stan. But it's planetoid, some celestial object that's quite large. And we cut to, essentially, I guess this is the United States. But it's the president's, I guess, situation room. Good evening, I'm Wolf Blitzer. And my face is being haunted by the ghost of an old beard. And the actor that plays the president is an interesting choice. <laughs> I've got to say. <laughs> it is Tommy Lister Jr. Rest in peace. He Tom, passed away in 2020, actually. I didn't know he was dead. Yeah. But I immediately recognized him as Debo from Friday. <laughs> and just kind of like the, you know, the, the, the bruiser character. And the fact that he's playing the president was odd. You know, he his line reads of a lot of these situations are very atypical of your normal like action movie president. I agree, but I want to attribute that to the future world that Luke Besson has built. Like, we have no idea how their election system works. He might just be like a responsible adult who was selected at random to be the president or something. Who knows? I'm perfectly content making that my headcanon. So you're saying this is basically like idiocracy where some random idiot gets to be president i mean it could be <laughs> he's a much more i'd say productive president than like your average citizen would probably be yeah yeah definitely but he doesn't feel like he's been soaked in politics his whole life right and he's just this extraordinarily imitating bruiser which he uses to his advantage at some points i won't give me my money you what hello and so the president essentially instructs a battleship which looks a lot like a Star Wars Star Destroyer. It's kind of like two low aspect ratio triangles, ass to ass, and then <laughs> elongated into a point. And so he's got his battleship staring down this fireball in the face and basically takes the path of scorched earth, just shoot it and destroy it. Well, he, he asked for advice. And the general on the ship is like, I'm of the, of the thought the school of thought to shoot first and ask questions later. And at that point, a priest who had entered the situation room just prior, like when he's about to say, all right, go for it, raises his hand. is like, what if you can't identify what it is because it doesn't want to be identified because it is evil and it is intelligent evil. Right. And his position is basically violence will beget violence. If you shoot this thing, nothing good will happen. Yeah. And he says, thank you for your advice. 
let's shoot this thing. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> and the battleship shoots it, and they get destroyed. It's kind of almost a harrowing scene, the captain of the ship. His face, as they're getting bum-rushed by yeah. this fire planet, is pretty intense. But the ship gets destroyed. Did you notice how in that scene, when the entity is like growing and then racing towards them, there's like this black goop that comes down the, the front of his forehead? Oh, no, I didn't, actually. Yeah. It's uh, it's something that I have theories about. It only happens twice in the whole movie. Right. But both times, it's whenever the person that it happens to is in direct contact with or dealing with the entity. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I, I noticed the later time, but not this one. So this entity grows, and it races towards the, the battle cruiser, and a giant flaming skull comes at it and presumably envelops it. And as that happens, an alarm clock is going off, and Bruce Willis is turning it off. He's just woken up from a sweaty nightmare, we presume. And his phone's ringing, and he's in his apartment in South Brooklyn. It's this tiny place that's super modular. And he gets a call from his boss named Finger about his cab that needs overhauling. And while they're talking, we get that this guy, his name is Corbin Dallas. And he's ex-military, and he's a divorcee, has regrets with that. He just wants to be with the perfect woman. He goes to leave his apartment. And there's a man who is like leaning forward with a hat that is a picture of the hallway outside of his door. If you look out the peephole, you just see your hallway. And he's just this tweaker who has this big spiky gun pointed at Corbin Dallas's face. Been here long? It just kind of uh, gives you an idea of who Corbin Dallas is. He's this cool-headed uh, ex-military cab driver. It's one of my favorite scenes in the movie because it's, it's done so efficiently. It's a really cool establishing exposition scene that succinctly shows and somewhat tells who Corbin Dallas is. And the world that he's living in. Yeah. I mean, he's got this little maybe 50 square foot, like futuristic modular bachelor pad, like you said. Yeah. And he so easily dispatches this tweaker in like the coolest calmest collected manner very similar very akin to john mcclain he's kind of uh jack nicholasing around <laughs> jack Nich jack nicholsoning around he's kind of jack nicholsoning around <laughs> in that jack nicholson is another guy that just plays jack nicholson in whatever role he's in he's bruce willising around he's bruce willising around yeah, yeah. I've, I'm not saying he has no dynamic range, but he's. I think in the 90s, he was kind of typecast a little bit. But yeah, anyways, I totally agree. Establishing his character, it's done really well, really efficiently. There's a, like this really cool music track that's kind of overplaying when he wakes up, and you see all the little doodads in his room and stuff. It's a really fun scene. Yeah, it should also be mentioned that uh, we see on the TV, which I guess comes on with his alarm clock, This is the beginning of the really rich and thoughtful world building that I love so, so much about this movie. Like the little cigarette machine on the wall that spits out the four cigarettes that are like three quarters filter. You know, I just, I love it so much. <laughs> I didn't notice that. There is clearly a lot of detail in all sorts of little scenes. Yeah, like everything is thought out. There's so many subtleties that unless you've seen it a million times like I have, you probably wouldn't even notice. Yeah, and that's one thing that um, I'll probably highlight a couple things as we go through, but there are pros and cons to that. The pros are noticing the little, I don't know if Easter eggs is the correct term, but little hidden 
extraordinary attention to detail things that are kind of in the background that add to the movie. But there's also all the untold little mini stories that pop up throughout the movie that leave you just wondering how does that, why is it that way? And like, I want to know more. And it feels like this, this story deserved to be more than a two hour movie. I totally get the, I want to know more. This, this is a movie that I remember watching it with you when we got to like the penultimate action scene or even like the last action scene. I was like, God, we're already here. Like, can't this go on a little longer? It's almost over. I want it. To, I want it to keep going. So I think it maybe did deserve the trilogy that the director originally had in mind. Boy, I'm surprised to hear you say that you wanted more of the movie because after we finished watching it, you said, wow, I'm a little embarrassed now to say that that was my favorite movie. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's the sort of thing where I hadn't seen it in like 10 years. And so re-realizing how campy it is and how out there it is just made me feel a little bit of secondhand embarrassment at how much I'd like talked it up to you. But then I watched it again with Katie last night and had a blast. Like, I don't know. I have to take it back. If there's one thing at this point, I think it's fair to say there's already been some camps. So I think I can already, I can make this statement, but to an extent you're right that it was so hyped up from you and you just said, it's my, it's my favorite movie. You have to watch it. So I'm like, wow, this is going to be like critically awesome movie. It's just going to be oh, great. No, you're expecting perfection. I think <laughs> if you go into it knowing it's kind of a campy movie, but it's solid, you have a much better time watching it. If you, understand like that basic premise it's not a masterpiece by any means not an oscar winner right yeah but it's fine i get that remind me to tell you about the reason why it was my favorite movie in the whole world later okay (laughs) so we get here that corbin dallas is a badass cab driver we see him leave in his like really cool flying cab into the hover city of south brooklyn and then we cut back and we're back again with the president and Ash from Alien, played by Ian Holm, also playing Servito Cornelius, the priest in this case, is explaining to the president what this entity is and how it's been around forever. And I guess you could say this is the hidden lore of the earth that nobody knows about except for this very specific sect. They've got 48 hours, and this thing is going to be able to adapt enough to destroy the earth and all it wants to do is destroy it. You can't reason with it. There's no way to stop it. There's only one thing that can stop it, and the Montagiwans have it. The What did you call them? The Metal Barneys with Earthworm Jim heads? <laughs> yeah, the Metal Barney aliens. Uh, they're the only ones who can stop it. They have the, the four elements, and the four stones, and the fifth element, the weapon against evil. Together, they are said to produce the light of creation, which is a power able to create life across the furthest reaches of the galaxy. That's why this thing is such a big deal and why only the, <laughs> the clunky uh, Barney aliens are able to <laughs> to hang on to it. And wouldn't you know, right then, one of the president's generals is like, hey, uh, there's a Montagiwan ship that is requesting entry into our territory. <laughs> <laughs> Yet another scene, we, we cut to the Monta... Is it... It's spelled differently than how it sounds. Is it Monta... It's spelled like Monta, Mondo Showan. Is it Monta Jiwen? Monta Shiwen? I, I spelled it phonetically as Monta Jiwen. Okay, I'll just say Monta Jiwen. Luckily, I don't think this will be another Anaxunaman <laughs> situation. I think I, I, I have this under control. Too bad. <laughs> we cut to the exterior space shot of the Monta Jiwen ship just kind of floating in space, and then it turns on its thrusters once they get entry into the solar system. It looks like it's moving... With the same animation used in um, The Nightmare Before Christmas, 
it clearly looks like it's somebody just holding the ship on like a, a, a string or something, <laughs> moving it <laughs> through it space. Because it passes, like, there were these red objects that I didn't notice, think about at the time. But were, they, were they like buoys marking the outer edges of the solar system? Yeah, I figure it's like a, it's a border, more or less, into the territory of the federated planets. Oh, that's interesting. So they passed the border. Everything looks like it's just kind of almost like suspended in air. And it, <laughs> it just, it's, it's hard to imagine that this was the intent. With $80 million budget, that's like huge, and the budget of entire other movies. It seems weird that this was the result in some scenes. I don't want to beat that to death, but <laughs> they enter the solar it system. It was still 97. I mean, they did a lot with like mats, you know, like big, highly detailed backdrops. I agree with you though, that the place where they didn't spend a lot of budget was in the space scenes. Like yeah. the ship looks pretty good. Yes. You, you get the gist of what they're doing, but it, it's definitely not the highest fidelity experience yeah. of the movie. And it, I mean, it is 97, but there's also plenty of examples of movies or movies and shows from 97 that show have great, very believable shots of spaceships moving through space. It's true. So it's definitely not undoable. And I can't imagine like Star Trek does it every episode just about, and they don't have a gigantic budget. That's true. Anyway. I don't know. I, I kind of want to watch it with a critical eye now. After you say that. My sense is a lot of the campiness is intentional. Yeah. I'll hit on that a little bit later. But yeah, so the, the Manda G ones, the, the metal Barneys, enter the solar system. But they're quickly gunned down by uh, these ships, these like little TIE fighter size ships relative to the Manda G one ship. They're maybe a tenth of the size. I'd say less than that, maybe a hundredth of the size. There's probably five to ten of them. I think there were two of them. Oh really? Yeah. Oh, well, they swarmed more. They they swarmed effectively. <laughs> yeah, a little duo swarm, swarm pair. But they they shoot the ship. The ship crashes and burns on some planet that I don't think was established. Th- these aliens inside the ship look. I, I call them Goomba aliens. <laughs> they look like Goombas, kind of to me. They do kind of look like Goombas. But again, more effects that are kind of like. Very second rate, like as you see them engage to fight, like their instruments kind of pop up in their ship and they kind of like wobble as they do it, which, <laughs> you know, just feels real kind of cheap. So once they destroy the Manda Jiwen ship, they radio into a certain Zorg. Jean-Baptiste Emmanuel Zorg. That they completed their mission. And we cut to where this Zorg is and we see his back and he's wearing this very futuristic, oddly colored get up. He's got this, it's like holographic green. Yeah. He's got this like kind of see-through purple collar. He's got like this extraordinary undercut. One idea is a dress that can be adapted for morning, afternoon or evening. It's the sleeves. What does it? And you only see his back, but then you hear this really country draw. I'm so glad to hear you at night. Good. I'll meet you at my factory. And it's just, I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't help but laugh for a while after I heard oh, that. Oh yeah, no, it, Zorg is a hilarious character to me as well. <laughs> Very out there. But they, these uh, Goomba aliens, have destroyed the Montagiwan ship, and immediately word gets back to the priest and the president, and all hope is lost. That was that was literally the weapon that they needed. It's gone. It caught my eye. The speed with which they performed the next operation. So the president and his entourage, it's his little like, you know, it's a military, military yeah. right-hand men. 
The president gets informed that the Montague ship crashed. He says, okay, like close the borders and act security protocols. And he basically turns around and someone says, the rescue team has reported from the Montague crash site. Any survivors? Only one. There was no time passed as far as what we saw on screen. And that same thought, I think that's one of those things where maybe they, if they had done the trilogy, that we would have gotten that like search party and how much time had passed between them. But it felt like they were in the same room. I'm thinking, based on how tired the priest is in the next scene, I'm thinking there had to have been hours at least that had passed between those interactions, but they don't do a good job of making it feel that way. Well, the survivor, though, is a hand. It looks like it's part of that statue from the beginning, this bronze-looking... It's just a metal T-Rex arm. Yeah, with a bone sticking out of it. Get it? Because Barney's a dinosaur. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What a face of embarrassment. That is great. (laughs) They've got this arm in like a a sealed science tube, and they're bringing it into this lab where they're going to reconstruct the being from it because there's still some cells that are alive. I guess in the future it is it is possible to you have like their their person printer. The scene is pretty cool and it elicits a sense of wonder in a way, I guess. At least it did for me when I was like 14 when I watched this. The scientist keeps raving about how the the DNA is perfect and it's so much more complex than human DNA and they're going to build it back into the person that it was before it got exploded. Do you have any uh as a scientist, do you have any knowledge into how possible or impossible those statements were for somebody that crafted this for 16 years i would hope that he found some you know grain of truth like a geneticist which to (laughs) use as like a nucleation site to build this web of science which i don't think there's a lot of science in this movie but (laughs) i mean there is some truth to like bio printing there's research into like printing organs oh i'm in i'm i'm sure that like I didn't have an issue so much with like the machine that printed the person, more so them raving about the DNA and, and how perfect it was and how much different it was. You see, normal human beings have 40 DNA memo groups, which is more than enough for any species to perpetuate itself. This has 200,000 memo groups. Is that a thing? Like, does more DNA equal better DNA? Yeah, that, that, was, that, was, that was essentially <laughs> what I took away from it. Like, okay. What does that translate to as far as the person, though? Like, they just hyper-intelligent or... Yeah, um, well, I think there's maybe some truth to that. I don't know that more DNA is always better DNA, but, like, if you compare the genome of, like, going to extreme scales, if you compare, like, yeast DNA to human DNA, there's obviously a lot more. Yeah. So it gets more complex the more DNA there is, of course. What struck me was, you know, human DNA is double helix. There's, like two strands and they kind of twist around the DNA of this Montagewin is like a quintuple helix or something. Yeah. It's like filled in with helix. It was like (laughs) eight strands of DNA all like passing by each other, one coil and then twisted. Who's to say that's not possible. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it is possible in some alien world, but my sense is like, I guess like life evolved in a very specific set of conditions on earth. And I feel like if it evolved somewhere else, it would probably look extraordinarily different and might not be DNA. Like Metal Barney. Yeah, Metal Barney. They do say that from what they see in the DNA, it seems to be an engineered being. Like, it was crafted purposefully. So maybe that's the reason why, but... I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. 
I don't know. Yeah, who could engineer? Obviously, like people on Earth at the time, mm-hmm. like because the Mondegewins were present in the ni- early 1900s. Who else out there was engineering them? Well, the cycle that is mentioned in the beginning is that every 5,000 years when the planets align in that way and the evil manifests, like, I guess this is something that's been going on since the beginning of time. And every 5,000 years is just a very thin sliver of that. So I I don't know. Maybe it was a product of whatever created the universe. But Mm. it's just one of those things that's left open that I I kind of like because it's left for interpretation and to provoke thought. Uh but yeah, the, this printer, it, it prints out a, a young woman with orange hair, and uh, they take some pictures because they're creeps. <laughs> well, at least there's like a there's a general there, the same one who has been advising the president, and uh, he's like, the printer finishes, and the lab tech's like, I told you, she's perfect. <laughs> the, the general like tilts his head and is like, I need some pictures to take back to my masturbation chamber <laughs> over this. And they, the flash goes off, and she wakes up, and is just like writhing, and she starts jabbering in a language that no one can recognize. I've also got to mention here, this woman we see, I think is the third woman we see in the movie. Okay. There's only three women on screen thus far the entire time. There was a woman in the president's situation room that uh-huh. I think maybe says one phrase to him. Sure. Zorg's receptionist was when a woman, yeah. the Goomba aliens call, yeah. and now her. I would argue there's also a woman on the TV in Corbin Dallas's apartment. Oh, they showed oh, that woman. Okay, so there's been four women on screen so far. There is no better definition of a throwaway character. Yeah. yeah. I, I guess I, I'm going ahead and bringing up an ongoing concern that there is very little female representation in this film, or at least very little female representation in substantial character positions i don't know we've got the diva we've got the diva and lilu and the diva the diva lilu corbin's mom is the diva even a woman i don't know if she's actually uh classifiable by gender right yeah (laughs) i think she's referred to as she though We'll, we'll, we'll put her in a special category of her own because she's certainly an alien but possibly a woman definitely russian possibly a jew i don't know thoughts i think pretty female Okay. Okay. We'll tentatively put it in the female category. <laughs> yeah, we should. This should be in the like. I'll loop back to this synopsis, and we later. can we can hammer this out later. I'm just going ahead and laying out some teasers for my thesis later. Okay. There you go. <laughs> uh, well, the the flash goes off. She wakes up. Uh, she's yabbering along. The general like comes over and it's like, hey, you know, if you want out of there, you need to learn to communicate. And he's kind of taunting her. And she gets all feral and punches through the unbreakable glass, like, you know, knocks this guy out by pulling him and bashing his head against the, the tube she's in. And then uses his key card to open it up. And she subsequently escapes by diving into, like, the insulation of the wall. Yeah. She runs to the edge of the building and through a bunch of ventilation shafts. Yeah. And emerges on the, like, outer ledge. And she looks down, and there are just hundreds of rows of cars under her. It's like intersections. Untold stories above the ground. Like the traffic pattern, which I found kind of interesting in this movie, is very orderly. There are kind of these invisible layers of roads in the Z direction. Yeah, the Z axis intersections. So, yeah, she's out on the roof, and she kind of gets pursued by police, but ultimately she dives off the edge of the building. 
Yeah. Risky move. Yeah. I I wasn't sure how to interpret this. I mean, she was in shock, and so maybe she just went went the only way she thought I've she th- wasn't being chased. Yeah, I have a theory there. Whenever she busts out of the like 3D printer originally, they kind of give you a, a view from her point of view, and she's like looking around at all this st- all the threats, like analyzing them, and they kind of make it almost seem like feral and mechanical and calculated, and then she ends up running because she's surrounded. I kind of feel like this was another calculated move on her part because there's so many cars flying around and I guess if she knows that she's a supreme being, which it's proven later she does, I guess she knows that she will hit a car. The chances are almost 100% that she'll land on a car and go somewhere else. Yeah, and be out of out of harm's way. Yeah, that's a fair idea. I so mean, it definitely she, seems like brash in the moment yeah. though. So she does this and happens to fall through the roof and into Bruce Willis's taxi cab as he's going to pick up a fare, I guess. There's no one in the car other than Bruce Willis. I think he was going for a six-month overhaul. Wait, what? <laughs> I, I think he was going for a six-month overhaul. Cause in, in the, be- the six-month overhaul? In the beginning, like his boss calls because he's got to get his cab into the shop because it's been he has like no points left on his license. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So the police pull up. Hey, you've got an unauthorized passenger. We got to get her out of there. And while he is reluctantly letting the cops attach their car to his car, she's begging for help because she's learned how to read just from sitting in the back seat and seeing the, like, charity poster. Please help. I've only got one point left on my license, and I need that to get back to the garage and get the cab a a six-month overhaul. You understand? And uh, he speeds off. Yeah, and the police give chase. And apparently, I guess he's a car thief because he has some... We learn he's a car thief from the police's interpretation of his moves and stuff. And because he, like, ripped out the license machine because it wouldn't shut up. Right. He's a pretty pretty greasy escape driver. Yeah. They There's a really fun chase scene. I think more cool music. Um, Some McDonald's titties put in there. Yep. Another woman in a meaningless role. I think she doesn't even say anything, maybe. Two golden menus. She's the, the drive through cashier at the McDonald's. Yeah. I don't think she has a, she has a wordless interaction with yeah. police, though, who are ordering McDonald's. Two golden menus. The costumes of the female characters in this movie are very lewd. Yes. I chalk it up to, like, that's how it is in this future. But it's a very bleak interpretation of women in the future. Yeah, it kind of is. I think, yeah, you're right. The McDonald's clerk, she does all of like hand the cops in the drive through their meal. And then she looks down at her own rack and then looks back up at the cop like. Two golden menus. Eh? <laughs> yeah. Ugh. So Lilu communicates, I think, what? Two words to Corbin. And somehow, Corbin is able to track down where this priest is. He, I think he said it's like phone book when he finds him. So maybe they have phone books in the future. Corbin knocks on the door, and the priest essentially shits a brick when Corbin shows him the tattoo on her wrist, which is the tattoo of the four stones. Yeah, the four element symbols. Right, the four and elements. He, I think he passes out too, so he's holding unconscious Lilu, and so he's just standing there in this guy's living room with two unconscious people. And when she's passed out, Corbin 
kisses her? Yeah, the priest wants him to wake her up, and, and he, like, leaves the room to get dressed. I guess because he was swooning over her from before, he's like, yeah, I guess I'll just wake her up like Prince Charming. You should know that the only way to deal with a female adversary is to seduce her. Boy, Corbin is quite a creep, huh? Yeah, it, uh, he knows he fucks up pretty quickly, though, because she pulls the gun that's on his hip and puts it to his head. You're right, you're right. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have done that. I, it was wrong to kiss you. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a very different kind of realizing you fucked up when you have a gun to your head versus you just organically went, you know, I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> right. <laughs> Maybe this is the the 90s shining through because you've made some good points about how the women in the in this movie are not as front and center aside from their breastuses. <laughs> Boy, that's an understatement. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Corbin's sliminess in this scene I think is another another example of that. Yeah. And Ruby Rod, but we haven't gotten there yet. There's a lot of interesting gender roles commentary, I guess, trying to be made, or they play with gender stereotypes, it seems like, a bit, especially in the male side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Cornelius uh, boots Corbin because he needs to do his priestly duties. Which I don't know what they are other than like, <laughs> hey, you're here now. Good thing you're alive because you're like the key to saving the world and stuff. <laughs> right. Yeah, he heads home, fingers calling, like, where's the cab? You didn't bring it in. And he's like, fuck, I got distracted by this beautiful fair. She's kind of swept me off my feet. He's clearly swooning over her. Uh, I see. And this uh, perfect fair, she got a name. Yeah. Lilu. He's describing how he fell in love only physically with a woman <laughs> that has said two words to him. Not in his own language. Plaz. How? Oh, yeah, it's true. And he's fallen in love with her. God. Yeah, you're making a very good argument about Corbin Dallas being like a creeper. He just lives alone in his apartment with his cat and falls in love with every woman he meets. Yeah, well, I don't know if he falls in love with every woman he meets, but he's just like somehow determines that this one woman that he kissed her when she was passed out only after the priest said, Oh, she's perfect. And he kind of looks down at her and goes, oh, perfect, huh? That's what I want. And then kisses her. It's almost like he's looking for the perfect physical female and doesn't care about anything else. He has no idea what they have in common. Anything. He just... True. All she said to him was, Plaz, help. And he's head over heels for her. It's it's love, Zach. Twoo love. <sighs> I, I think the only way that this is excusable is in the ambiance that the movie creates in these scenes where like... It's an immediate connection between them, like with the eye contact and how happy she is to see that he's friendly. I'm not saying it's entirely excusable, and I totally see where you're coming from, but I, I guess it's You just, mean he's seeing that kind of like childlike innocence. Yeah. And just general bubbliness, even though he can't understand it, that's he's kind of attracted to that. Yeah, I guess. And, you know, the movie magic of like, we look into each other's eyes and there's something there sort of thing. Like That's true. That scene in the cab after she fell in and they kind of lock eyes that does help a lot with making this less cringy yeah cringy Uh because it does feel like she also at least feels comfortable around him much more so than anyone else without that scene this would be much more creepy yeah if you can believe in the movie magic it's much less creepy if if you if you just miss the movie magic or you don't believe in it it's like okay corbin what the fuck you're you're yeah get out of here you should be in prison yeah but 
I'm I fall somewhere in between, more leaning towards the side of the movie magic. It helps quite a bit. So she's woken up, and the and the priest is kind of uh, catching her up, letting her browse the internet, and she's just like commander dataing through the encyclopedia. I'm an android, and and learning all about everything while explaining what happened to the stones to Vito. I called him Priest Ash because I just couldn't not see Ash, the the android from Alien, yeah. in him. Could you see Bilbo Baggins? Oh shit! Was that him? It yeah. was him. Yeah. Damn. <laughs> they just age him so he was so much older in Lord of the Rings. I didn't even make the connection. But um, so she's catching up the priest on how the stones were stolen by Zorg. We get to see him now metallically limping through a hallway, and one of his aides comes up and it's like, "Hey, we need to fire like half a million people." He's like, "Fire one million. And we just get the ruthless side of Zorg here. But we get back and forth between Lilu explaining what happened and Zorg kind of receiving the Mangalores, who are these Goomba aliens. They're there for their reward. They've brought the stones to Zorg. He's going to give them four crates of, of like these awesome dinosaur egg modular like assault rifles. They're like the coolest thing. Such a cool gun. I love this so much as a kid. My favorite. One of my favorite edits in the movie, probably my favorite edit, is in the scene that you pointed out. It's nothing flashy. It's just a cut and then a cut back. It's right when he opens the case that the Mangalores brought with the stones. It's empty. And he kind of poses it as a question. It's empty? And you cut to Lilu's like, laugh. <laughs> Hilarious laugh. This case is empty. <laughs> what do you mean, empty? Empty. The opposite of full. <laughs> it's such a great use of just a really simple edit, but it was hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. Her laugh, it was just so, such a blunt cut right to her laugh, but it was great. Yeah. There's a lot done with like those scene transitions that endears the movie to me greatly. Yeah. Like little overlaps, little cuts back and forth like that just adds so much to it. We bamboozled him. Zorg is like, we're only getting one crate. They, they threaten him and he gives them one crate of these weapons. And Lilu explains to the priest that they entrusted the stones to someone else because they never fully had faith in the human race. <laughs> rightfully so zorg walks out after his like sales pitch for this like dinosaur egg gun and this little scene will make you fall in love with gary oldman because in his like weird evil country accent he's talking to his like right hand man about tell you what i do like though a killer a dyed in the wool killer cold-blooded clean methodical and thorough now a real killer when you picked up the zf1 would have immediately asked about the little red button on the bottom of the gun that was actually a nod to Leon the Professional. Oh, really? Yeah. A real professional? A real killer? And Gary Oldman was a cold-blooded killer in that movie. And oh. there was almost the exact same explosion scene. Stansfield. At your service. This is from Matilda. Nice. So, Lilo explains that the person who's got the stones is the diva Plava Laguna, and she's going to be on planet Flostin, which just so happens to be the same pleasure planet where this contest that's going on that we heard about in the beginning takes place. So all they need to do is get there and rendezvous with the diva and get the stones, and they'll be good to save the world. Follow my planet, very soon you will Easier said than done, Mitch. Easier said than done, especially when Zorg is sending his lackeys after the priest now. Yeah, so Zorg 
has his goons bring Cornelius the priest to his evil palace. And Zorg basically interviews him. Where are the stones? Cornelius bluffs, says, I don't know. And Zorg basically starts just like monologuing about why what he's doing is pro-life. That's kind of a charged term, but he's saying that him and the priest are pursuing the same thing, which is a better life for more people. Right. And he demonstrates this by breaking a glass and explaining how more people will need to make the glass and there needs to be cleaners and such. Same analogy can be applied to the death of millions of people. (laughs) You and I are in the same business. In the middle of explaining all this, he starts choking on a cherry. And when he's choking, he starts kind of wildly flailing around on his desk. And there's all sorts of, you know, communication buttons, keypads, oh shit buttons, emergency buttons. He's just flailing around and smashing all of these. And all these different contraptions on his desk start to just actuate. Cars start shooting out of everywhere. Liquid starts spraying. There's a little case that opens up and there's like a little mini alien elephant (laughs) animal in it that serves no use to him. And Cornelius walks up behind him and does like a little monologue back at him before slapping him on the, on the back to get the cherry out. Your entire empire of destruction comes crushing down all because of one little cherry. Back in uh, the land of the good guys, President Debo and probably his foremost right-hand military men are discussing where the location of the stones actually are. Unbeknownst to them, one of Zorg's henchmen is remotely controlling a cockroach (laughs) with a camera and a little mini satellite dish audio recording (laughs) device strapped to its back. Yeah. And you see the henchman having like a little joystick and controlling the cockroach that way. He's wearing headphones, watching a monitor with the feed and the audio. And he is a little bit overzealous with how close to the audio he's getting because he can't hear well enough. He walks the cockroach onto the table right in front of the president and just looks up at the president (laughs) while he's discussing where the stones are. The president takes off his shoe after noticing the cockroach, splats it. The noise is so loud, the headphones blast off his head and he screams. <laughs> this was incredible. It made me remember, we started a henchman tier list oh, that we, we forgot to go into in Hackers. Oh, shit, That we right. need to revive. Because this is, I think, the main henchman. This is. In fact, I think his casted name is Right Arm. Right Arm, okay. Yeah. This is definitely the main henchman. Yeah. <laughs> so... In this movie, the henchmen in question are like the bodybuilders in all black with their little Tupperware hats. Oh, yeah. And then right arm. This is the man controlling the cockroach. Yeah. <laughs> that got audio blasted. Right. <laughs> Before he got his you know, eardrums busted out, he got the information that the stones are in Floss in Paradise and that the general has got the perfect man for the job. So score one for right arm henchman. Yeah, score one. <laughs> Do you think that they really needed to rig the contest for Corbin Dallas to get there? Like, I guess they wanted to keep it incognito. Was that the reason? It's a headcanon reason. I don't know that it's explained explicitly. This is probably the only plot weak point. Maybe not the only one, but this is, this is a plot <laughs> weak point that I will address. They didn't need to rig the contest for Corbin Dallas to win. 
if they were trying to keep it an incognito mission. It didn't really make sense in that way. It would be way less fun if that wasn't what they did. Yeah, because it, it highlighted him too. A yeah. lot of people saw it as an opportunity to try and usurp his place as the winner of the radio contest. Right, which will lead us into our next scene, which is probably my favorite scene in the whole movie because we're back at Corbin's apartment and he's getting like hover con key from his window. Uh, this is this is another just really cool world building element where uh, he's talking to an Asian man who has his whole like restaurant on this hover boat that is just docked at his window and, and like serving him lunch. It's very similar designed to like an old Chinese junk, very yeah. ancient style. So cool. While he's while he's eating, he gets a letter, and Mr. Kim, his lunch host, is like. You got a message. Yeah. And I can open it. Could be important. He's like, nah, last thing I got in the mail was my lawyer leaving me. And then the thing after that I got was that my wife was leaving me with my lawyer. That is bad luck. But grandfather say it never rained every day. This is good news. Guarantee. Come on. You are fired. His read of that... <laughs> Was perfect. Yeah, it really was. It was with so much. He read it like this was the greatest statement ever. And then immediately his face was, oh, shit. <laughs> you are fired. Oh. <laughs> yeah. And about this time, uh, Corbin's mom calls, who is this just terribly disappointed woman who is immediately railing Corbin. Enter our next female character. Yes, the next female character, <laughs> aside from Lilu and Zorg's receptionist, is... The uncredited Corbin's mom, yeah. yeah. She's just, you know, going on a pity party. So you don't know you want a trip to Flossed in Paradise for two for ten days. And I suppose you're just going to leave me on the lunar surface to freeze my ass off. He's sitting here trying to light a cigarette and getting all distracted. Burns his hand. And he's like, If I don't want a trip, I'd know about it. Somebody would have notified me. <laughs> And the doorbell rings. It's the general of the president. I'll call you back. Opens up the door, lets them in. And the general's just kind of like busting his balls. Like, oh, I see you've settled into a great life. And, uh, oh, looks like you won a contest. We also have a mission for you. You're going to go to Floss in Paradise and save the world. And about that time, the doorbell rings. And it's Lilu. And he's like, oh, fuck. I guess he's very concerned because he knows that she's wanted and now he has officials in his apartment and he wants to protect her. One of these officials is another female character. I think enter fifth female character of the movie. Who says nothing. Right. Her name is Major Iceborg. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she's this very, would you say Icelandic looking? Extraordinarily masculine. Masculine, Nordic. Basically there to serve as a joke. She, She literally is. She is to be posing as Corbin's wife on this trip. And Corbin is very unhappy about that because she looks masculine and is muscular. Major Iceborg will accompany you as your wife. I am not going. Why not? See, that's not how I interpreted it, though. I felt that he wasn't going just not because of the person that had been selected for his wife, but because he's like, I don't want any more of the military bullshit. Like, I retired six months ago. I don't want anything to do with it. That, that was what I got. I didn't think it was because he was a, you know... A creep that we've already established. <laughs> a creep that... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Take it as you will, Zach. But yeah, Lilu rings the, the doorbell. He's like, well, fuck. 
I can't have them interacting. So he shoves the three military people into his refrigerator and then hits a button and it like lowers down to the floor and the shower comes down. By the way, the lead military guy's face when he shoves him in. <laughs> it's so great. It's spectacular. It really is. It's the best face in the whole movie. It is. <laughs> this whole sequence is such a fun experience for the viewer. So Lilo's at the door. He answers it and Cornelius pops out with a gun. It's like, I'm so sorry. You won that contest. We need, we need those tickets because we've got to save the world. And right about this time when Corbin's like, what, what the fuck? The alarm bells go off and there's like a, a police search that's happening in the apartment building. And so once again, Corbin's like, well, fuck, the police are probably looking for Lilu. So he sticks her in the shower, raises it up again, puts the priest in the like pull-out bed, shoves him underneath. So the police are there because they've gotten a tip from right arm, Zorg's number one henchman that there's an iridium smuggler in the building by the name of Corbin Dallas. And I guess this is his attempt to also steal the tickets and impersonate Dallas and get on the flight to go to Floss in Paradise. And so the police come in. Thankfully, Lilu had taken off the name tag on the door. So the police, they take the wrong guy. He's gotten away scot-free with his street smarts. And then as the police are leaving, the Mangalores show up and they kill the police and they steal the dude who is presumably Corbin Dallas and are ready to get their revenge against Zorg by impersonating Corbin Dallas to get on the ship to get the Floss in Paradise and steal the stones. This has all happened in the span of like two or three minutes. It's just one after the other after the other and it's, it's a ton of fun. The last thing that happens is he gets Lilu out of the like shower that has soaked her and the priest out of the bed that shrunk wrapped him. The priest hits him over the head with one of his medals, steals the tickets, and runs. And at that mm-hmm. point, Corbin like recovers himself. He opens up the fridge, and the general and the other two are like completely frozen in there. And he takes the the dossier. Really fun sequence, which only gets much more fun where all these different parties are converging, which is essentially this like spaceport. All these parties want to get to the planet Floston. And the way to get there is to take a ferry or a space shuttle. But multiple parties show up to the ticketing booth, which is as all customer service jobs in this futuristic world are. It is operated by a extraordinarily attractive female. Right. With some sort of uh, garment that exposes her breasts somewhat. It is actually a, basically a turtleneck, but just crescent moon shaped pieces taken out to show a little bit of cleavage. Yeah. Just the tops of the boobs. <laughs> Just the tops of the boobs. You get some nice top-down boob action going on. <laughs> Cornelius and his apprentice show up first, claim that they're Corbin Dallas. Mr. Dallas? Uh, yeah. Corbin actually shows up, interrupts them, and says, no, 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 these guys can fuck off. I'm Corbin Dallas. I am Corbin Dallas. So he actually manages to get onto the ship. The other human posing as Corbin Dallas shows up that was wrongfully taken by the police saying i'm corbin dallas corbin dallas yeah that's me but very quickly it's revealed that he is a mangalore in shape-shifting form this was interesting to me he couldn't hold his form his like true mangalore shape was kind of like oozing past his humanity and lastly is right arm the henchman of most prominence in this movie who shows up saying hi i am corbin dallas I am Corbin Dallas. Sorry, sir. Boarding is finished. She's like, I've only got one. Get out of here. And like shuts down the ticket booth. So right arm's unable to get on on board the shuttle. 
Corbin and Lilu board the plane, and immediately Corbin is whisked away by some of the um, the scantily clad stewardesses. Enter the next class of female <laughs> actors in this movie. Yeah, I mean they they're very sexy. It definitely achieves that, but I, I think it's just '90s action movie really trying to appeal to the male audience. Yeah, look with a bunch of babes. Yeah, um, but anyway, one of them whisks away. Corbin Dallas because he's got to go meet Ruby Rod. He's so green. Who is the radio host, the person who is vocalizing this contest that's been going on. And Ruby Rod is the most eccentric and hilarious character in the whole movie, in my opinion. Like... It's played by Chris Tucker, who's very loud, and he his character is somewhat effeminate, but just so out there and extra and animated. He's very self-absorbed. His costumes are all some format of like a person condom that's open at the top, and then his hair is <laughs> is just insane, like insanely phallic in some way. Usually, I think saying he's somewhat effeminate is like the understatement of this poem. <laughs> he is extraordinarily flamboyant. Yeah, that's, that's true. As flamboyant as his outfits are, but at the same time, he this is where they kind of play with the gender roles because he's also this like male sex symbol for all of the the women for the entire customer service industry of the, of the movie yeah. universe yeah. Winter, ladies, yeah it all seems very like sexually charged and in the same way that corbin dallas as you have described is a bit of a creep so is everyone else because it's it's just about the sex with like the mainstream media through the channel of ruby rod i was just trying to vocalize how i'm retrospectively agreeing with your take on the like misogyny oh yeah to put, to put it okay. in a word okay anyway ruby rod is just like prancing around this plane <laughs> this whole scene is incredible i didn't know what to make of it first time i saw it i still don't but something about it just feels iconic it's just so inimitable inimitable so good or unusual as to be impossible to copy i can't put my finger on what makes it great and fun but it's so experimental and exploratory with what they do. He it almost makes no rhyme or reason. He kind of rhymes as he's talking. He's got this microphone. His voice is kind of distorted. He really is just prancing around. He's so just overly loquacious. Loquacious. Tending to talk a great deal. And everything. Describing everything. He's got a microphone on the end of a long like staff. And multiple times he puts the staff up in Corbin's face like... And Corbin just says something to the extent of, I'm excited. Unbelievable! <laughs> yeah. I think, I think what you're looking for, like the thing that it is, it's the energy of the scene. Like Chris Tucker brings this potent energy to it. Between the music and the shots and like the moving throughout and everyone else's excitement at seeing Ruby Rod, it's like there's so much positive energy there that further builds on the, this world that is being shoved down our throats it is the energy but it's it's not just the energy like it's the energy it's the chaos it's the exquisitely chaotic eccentricity yeah it's yeah yeah so far out there it's extraordinarily captivating right (laughs) he finishes his little spiel 
we get that they're going to be back on air tomorrow from five to seven for the like show whenever the diva performs. Chris Tucker, Ruby Rod, is not happy with Corbin's like two-word performance. It must be green, okay? Okay? Can I talk to you for a second? Can I just talk to you for one second? I didn't come here to play Pumbaa on the radio. So tomorrow from five to seven, you're going to give yourself a hand. Green? They're putting all the passengers in their sleep pods and they have like, I guess, hypersleep chambers for this light speed trip they're about to go on. And... Corbin goes and gets in the sleep pod with Lilu, who now speaks English, she's learned, tries to explain to her that we're not on vacation, this is, a, this is a covert mission, it's very important, and that he will protect her. And then she's like, no. Me, fifth element, supreme being. Me, protect you. Hmm? I just thought that was kind of neat. It kind of is a theme a little bit throughout where we're presented with Lilu as the character who is in need of help, but it kind of bounces back and forth between her and Corbin Dallas a little bit, between like who is the person who's helping the other. I don't know. I just kind of thought that was a, a neat thought experiment. Like who's the main character? Yeah. Who's the main character and who who is the person who's helping the other? They're, they're starting to make the case that Lilu is the main character here. They're put down to sleep. And the plane is about to take off. And we get a bunch of fun back and forths with some kind of jiving music between Ruby Rod continuing to womanize and now fraternize with one of the flight attendants. At the same time this is happening, we're getting all these back and forth shots. Right arm calls Zorg to tell him about how he was not able to get on the plane. Right as Zorg is doing a little bit of, I'm very disappointed in you, stuff the plane takes off at the exact same time that zorg like hits a button on his little keypad and blows up the phone booth that right arm is talking from r.i.p right arm r.i.p he was a fun henchman he was i liked him a lot he was like super effective and then he just failed when he needed to succeed yeah, I get the sense Zorg is hard to work for. If you're not getting results 100% of the time, you're not going to last very long. How long do you think Rhydarm was in employment with Zorg? Um, Less than a month? Oh, I'd say longer than that. I'd say a year. Okay. Probably. He had access to some pretty crafty tech with that uh, cockroach spycraft. Yeah, yeah. Should we think about our henchman rating system now at the point of death or should we talk about at the end i think this is a good time like we can examine his his feats and his blunders okay let's hear what you your take on right arm first we need to make to establish the outline of the henchman tier list itself because i know we talked about like s and ss tier and then i proceeded to say things like tier two henchman which i think when you're doing a tier list it's all letters or it's all numbers i vote we do Letters? The letter, starting with S and going down to F. So it'd be like okay. S, A, B, C, D, F. Yeah, I would give right arm probably like a C-tier henchman. That's where I would put him too. I would put him as a C-tier. He was very effective for a short amount of time. He didn't have a lot of screen time, but when he did, he was either getting shit done or ultimately failing at getting shit done. He was a little goofy in his execution of some of the things he did too. So Yeah. Which added to the humor of the film. Yeah, I'd give him C, mainly because he failed and ended up getting killed by his boss, which is not what you're supposed to do as a henchman. Right. I feel like the humor, I'm not sure what the humor he added contributes to his henchman status, but 
You're right. He was mildly effective. He was fairly good at spycraft, but... His biggest blunder is that he, he was late to the plane. Right. He could have been first, or he could have found some other way to get on. Yeah. I think for that reason, even if he wasn't killed by Zorg, if he lived but hadn't gotten the plane and didn't make another entrance, I think he'd still be C. But ultimately, he was only moderately effective as a henchman, I'd say, in carrying out the villain's main goal. So I, I think we can confidently put him in the C tier range. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. Sending radio wavelengths. What does the one with radio waves? Maybe he wants to make a call. Zorg gets a phone call from the entity, referred to by the secretary as Mr. Shadow. And he gets some barbecue sauce put on his forehead, too, kind of like the dude in the beginning. <laughs> some barbecue sauce. That's what it looks like. It, looks, <laughs> it literally looks like someone poured barbecue sauce like on his head from out of frame. From an unseen point source. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if that's what they did. I guess the entity like just makes people bleed barbecue sauce when he's talking to them. <sighs> Nobody makes me bleed my own barbecue sauce. <laughs> <laughs> that might be the title right there, man. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, the ship lands on planet Floston, and it's a space Hawaiian greeting, Zach. It is. It was a very in-your-face welcome party. Lilu woke up a little before Corbin, so she's like off on her own, rendezvousing with one of the diva's people. And they say, wait here, that the diva will have the stones for you soon. We see the diva like enter her, her suite, and she's this like very tall alien woman in draped in like a satin sheet, intimidating the crewman who like welcomes her. Corbin goes to his room, is you know given a suit. One fun note is somehow Corbin's mom gets the number to his room on the pleasure cruise. <laughs> oh yeah, he's he lays in his bed for maybe all of five minutes before the phone rings. Hello. You miserable bastard! I never should have pushed you out. Huh? <laughs> oh, mom. Pretty much immediately, we're put into the opera house portion of this like floating space hotel, and it is a perfect reproduction of the New York Opera House, the Metropolitan, I believe. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh, yeah, it looked kind of familiar, but I didn't know it was exactly almost a replica of... Um... Well, I think the the joke is that it is actually the Metropolitan Opera House, and, okay. and when they're entering, Ruby Rod's like, oh, it's an exact replica of... Oh, I didn't even hear that. The diva comes out, and they are treated to a very initially traditional opera. While all of this is going on, the Mangalores have revealed themselves and are ransacking the diva's suite looking for the stones. Mm -hmm. And Lilu, who's waiting there, sees this happen and like has flashbacks to her ship getting destroyed earlier and goes in there and like kicks all their butts. When they actually kicks off the opera singer's routine, takes a 90 degree turn and goes from kind of like your classical opera into this like staccato, extraordinarily dynamic, really non-routine performance with her voice just rapidly going from note to note. Yeah. On top of this kind of like cyberpunky sounding beat. I don't know how you feel about this, but I love this. I'm the type of person who gets chills pretty easily from like especially from vocals, like in music, uh, heartfelt scenes in movies, stuff like that. And this one gets me every time. I admit there's still a lot of like campy action going on at the same time. But it's it's fun. It's not, to me, it wasn't overly tired. It's campy in a fun way, not campy in a 
I've seen this before. God, they're doing this. Uh, it's it's well done, I think. I have a fun fact, actually, for this little action scene with Mila Djokovic. She wasn't flexible enough to do the high kicks. She's, like, punching people back and forth, very, like, comic book-esque, the way that it's happening. And she keeps doing these high kicks where her leg, like, comes up in front of her face. They had to use a prop leg on a stick oh, really? for that, yeah, because she couldn't get up that high. Zorg has decided to take matters into his own hands and has brought his own little warp ship to meet up on Colossus Paradise, and he docks. Right as Lilu has finished dispatching all the Mangalores and is trying to leave the suite with the box of stones, he walks in. Thank you for doing all dirty work. I couldn't have done a better job myself. Hand off the stops. And she, realizing that she has no way out, tosses him the box he catches it, and while he's like off center, getting his balance, she like flings herself up into the air ducts. Do you think that air ducts are the other staple '90s location for action movie characters? Maybe secondary to roofs. Yeah, but they pop up a lot. Air ducts are very prevalent because we we had air ducts in Bad Boys with the heist, and now we have air ducts in The Fifth Element. Definitely kind of a trope. I think it's also a very '80s thing too. Did you notice the bad cut here? She's holding the box of stones and then throws them to him. And so while he's like trying to grab it, she runs away. When she throws it, she throws it where it is, is rotating at a pretty high velocity. It rotates yeah. like twice in half a second. When it shows it flying and arcing through the air, it's not rotating at all. Oh, I didn't notice that. It's kind of a nitpicky thing that probably happens in a lot of movies, I guess. But it caught my eye. I was like, oh, that is, that's kind of a big thing. Unacceptable, Zach. This movie is F tier. It defies physics. He sees her go up there and then proceeds to shoot up the whole ceiling of the suite, eventually hitting her. Mm-hmm. Also, while this is going on, the Bangalores have infiltrated the opera house and managed to cap the diva because she's up on stage and she has a bullet come from nowhere and blast through her. Things are looking pretty dire. Like, Lilu's shot in the air duct. The diva is like dying. Corbin pulls her off the stage. The Mangalores are sweeping the place, taking over. Zorg has planted a bomb in the diva's room as he leaves. Let's change the beat. As she's dying, the diva is like telling Corbin what he needs to do. You must give her the stones. Who? The fifth element. The supreme being sent to earth to save the universe. Yes, but she's more fragile than she seems. She needs your help and your love, or she will die. And I thought that that was a thought-provoking statement that I hadn't really thought about until this most recent watch. Corbin is like, well, okay, where are the stones, though? (laughs) Her last words are, In me. And she dies. Zorg is heading out on his ship and he once again forgot to check the box. (laughs) We're not here. Corbin manages to pull the stones out of the diva. He's like reaching into her abdomen, pulling out these stones covered in blue goop. This is all happening while they're kind of prone to stay out of view and or fire from the Goomba aliens have taken over the theater. Oh, I also want to mention, we, here's another 90s trope. There's a sound effect that happens. Yeah, the GoldenEye sound effect. Yes, it's like that that dark, mm-hmm. 
like suppress the, the dark, dark spell. Sound. Yeah, it's here. It is, and you know what? You're right. When I was reading about this movie again, this one of the same people who worked on the Golden Eye soundtrack worked on the the oh, music no for way. this. It is this. It is the same. So we just copied and pasted it. Yeah, from Golden. It is the same one. It only has uh, a couple of cameos here in this movie, <laughs> but uh, I really appreciated it. Um, extra nineties. So. Corbin, it's, it's time for action, Zach. Engage proximity boner. <laughs> We're getting close. While figuring out the stones and stuff with Ruby, uh, they get discovered by the Mangalores. Ruby Rod is next to him, just kind of blabbering and panicking, essentially the whole time. They kind of have to like shoot their way out of the opera house. Yeah. This is when we get back into like the big entrance foyer of this this ship that they're on, and. It's just like shoot them up for a, a couple minutes here where Corbin comes out and just like busting caps all over the place, killing these Mangalores. He jumps off of the balcony and ends up pinned down by like a two-man rocket machine gun turret with, oh, manned yeah. by a couple of Mangalores. And while he's hiding behind there without a, a weapon getting all blasted, a Goomba alien pops up over the edge of the bar and like holds him at gunpoint and he surrenders supposedly and is like... And while he's doing this, he stands up on the bar. The Goomba alien who has him at gunpoint um, like tells him to get down, and he just so happens to be standing on like the perfect seesaw that's been set up. And so he jumps down on it, bounces the Goomba alien up into the ceiling. His head goes through it. He starts shooting all over the place, shoots all his comrades. Ruby Rod is like up above, right where the head came through. At that point, more of them are pouring in. And Corbin grabs like a spike grenade from one of the bodies of the bad guys, throws it up in the ceiling, and he and Ruby Rod escape under a pool table as they count to ten, and this this grenade goes off, and it's a giant explosion, killing pretty much all the bad guys in this vicinity. And this is another fun fact: that explosion was at the time the biggest indoor explosion that had ever been pulled off. What? Yeah, and it wow. t- it took like half an hour for them to put out the fire. Whoa. The subsequent fire from it. Wow. Corbin and Ruby Rod kind of formed a two-man team, sort of. But it was a really lopsided team. Corbin was like the Navy SEAL of the situation. It was almost like they were just using Ruby Rod in this action scene as a contrast for, look at how badass Corbin Dallas is in these situations, and look at how useless Ruby is. Because he's kind of just like screaming a lot and like muttering to himself Mm -hmm. he's barely able to like move out of the way the one thing he is able to do is effectively narrate what's happening to the entire world because he's still on air this whole time he is narrating, and like we see the president and the generals listening in guard this with your life or you're gonna look like this guy right here green green super green is that your idea of a discreet operation don't worry sir i know my man he'll calm things down I guess you could also say that Ruby Rod prolongs the fun element of the movie instead of it just going like straight action badassery here. Yeah. Which I think keeps the theme of the movie. But you're right. Like he doesn't really do anything other than like tag along. I'm not sure who's in charge of, I think it may be the costume designer who's mm-hmm. in charge of not only making the costumes, but like putting the actors in them. Yeah. I read that when they had Chris Tucker and the costume designer said, okay, here's what you're going to be wearing. Chris Tucker said, no, I'm not going to wear that. Really? And the costume designer had a backup plan. His backup plan was, 
a second set of more flamboyant outfits than what was shown in the movie. He said, okay, well, if you don't want to wear that, you can wear these. Oh my God. And Chris Tucker was like, okay, I'll wear the first ones. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. I remember reading too that the costume designer who did this, he's like a prolific French designer and he hand dressed and checked 500 or so extras. I think it was for this scene because there's like so many people that had just come out of the the opera that are all dressed in these super like futuristic eccentric costumes and he like went through and hand checked every single one of them to make sure that they were right wow they make their way to the helm of the ship where the goomba aliens have taken the crew hostage including the priest who had stowed away previously on the shuttle and they want to send somebody in to negotiate and corbin goes in and just domes the goomba leader effectively ending their takeover in the aftermath corbin needs to find lilu he knows that she's missing so something must be wrong he's checking all the cameras in the like security room and sees a hand hanging out of a vent and they find it's the diva's room and he goes there to get her so he runs in the room hoping that she's there and the whole time when she's in the air doctor was pretty affecting i don't know if it's her or it's just like the specific cries for help that she does but it really kind of got me the way that she portrayed her being in an extreme amount of distress was actually kind of disturbing in a way so corbin finds her hanging out of the duct pulls her out and they don't get a whole lot of time to sort things out or revel in the fact that they're with each other again because what's this thing with all these numbers no 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 because if it was a bomb the alarms will go off because all these hotels have bomb detectors, right? That has, I think, like five minutes left on it. There's not yeah. much time until it goes explodey. And the ship starts sending out these audio notifications to everyone. You need to evacuate. You have five minutes until a bomb goes off, basically. So pandemonium just breaks out in the ship. People start scrambling to get to these like evacuation pods that just kind of jettison from the main body of the cruise ship. At this point, we see Zorg come back because the stones that he needs are still in the ship. As far as he knows. Concurrently, Lilu, Corbin, Cornelius, and Ruby are making their way to their own evacuation pod. Zorg and the good guys, they actually have a near miss. They almost see each other in an elevator shaft. But the good guys get away, and Zorg makes it back to the diva's room where the, the bomb was, and he defuses the bomb. With five seconds left to go. Right. But unfortunately, he doesn't realize the Goomba aliens have a Klingon sense of justice. Klingons do not allow themselves to be probed. (laughs) One of them pulls out a little detonator and says, For the honor! And presses it. They set off their own explosive device, and Zorg is no longer. Oh, no. They explode the ship right as Corbin and friends zoom away in Zorg's ship. I thought it was so cool how the protagonist and the antagonist never meet it's so close like oh yeah you're right yeah as corbin and everyone else is getting in one elevator zorg is getting out of the other one and there's like a couple of frames where they're in the same scene but they never see each other and while they are technically aware of each other they never have the like showdown that you expect in a movie like this right it was all by extension sending out his goons and whatnot right it's unique so they've gotten away And the president and staff are ready to celebrate. The only problem is the entity has started hurtling towards the earth at unspeakable speeds. And so President Debo calls up Corbin and is like, 
hey, uh, we have like an hour and 57 minutes until this thing hits Earth. I'll call you back in two hours. And so they zoom back to Earth and they get to the tomb from the beginning. The priest's lackey is there. He's gotten it all opened up and they get the stones and they match them up to their different pedestals, but it's not working. They can't get help from Lilu because she is like out. This is one of those things that I noticed in the movie is that I think that's one of the things the diva was alluding to, that she needs that positivity to like live because on the trip to Earth in that transport time, she's like finishing up reading through the encyclopedia and she gets to W and she reads about war and it like destroys her, how humanity is so cruel to itself. That breaking of her psyche has got her in this nearly catatonic state where they're trying to save the world and they've got her, the weapon to destroy evil, like in the place where she's supposed to be and it's not working. Mm-hmm. While they're going through this, they set the stones up. They don't know how to open them up and, and Lilu is only able to say like a couple of words like, And David, the priest's apprentice, he sighs in desperation standing over one of the stones and it opens just a little bit. They're able to extrapolate like, oh, we need to apply these different elements, these four different stones to open them up. And this is one of the most intense scenes where they get water. It's easy. Priest just squeezes some like sweat from a rag off of his head onto the stone. They throw some dirt on the earth stone. It opens up. They blow on the, the, the wind stone. It opens up. And then they get to the fire stone. And it's like, and then Corbin comes over and he reaches in his pocket and he pulls out the little box of matches from earlier, from the scene when they were still on earth and everyone was coming into his apartment when he had gotten distracted by his mother. And he's got one match left. And so he lights it and everyone's standing around and holding their breath and he brings it down and he manages to open up the stone. This was surprisingly tense. Yeah. I thought that it had a good chance of actually going out. Yeah, I know. And they have to find another way. <laughs> like, don't breathe. And then somebody like, like catches their breath and you see it flicker. And I was like, <gasps> <laughs> just the whole world's fate dependent on one little match. No yeah. big deal. Those things are so temperamental sometimes. But they get it to go. They, I guess, set the match down on the fourth element, and it lights. And they follow the the prescribed placement of the fifth element as written on the wall. I guess they carry Lilu. Yeah, they like just later down there because she's still just unwilling to carry herself or do really just barely exist. Yeah, she's in like a hopeless mental state. And Corbin is trying to talk her into like, okay, like here is what you're meant to do. Like we have very little time left. You need to save us. And she is basically unwilling at this point to do anything. She's still just... Does she vocalize what she's thinking at this point? I forget. I think she's. she says something like, what's the point of saving life when all it wants to do is destroy or, or whatever? She's like... So she's hopeless because like, why should she go through all this effort to perpetuate the existence of this, of this species that constantly tears itself apart? Right. And then Corbin's cool. saying... Well, there's so many good things to live for, you know, like life and love and all this. And, and she says, well, I don't know love. Like, I don't understand what that is. Corbin has to pretty much say, well, I love you. I need you to not give up so we don't all die. And then she give, they have a big kiss and she gives into it. And she is activated. 
Yeah, she Kamehameha's from her mouth. <laughs> she gives an Nine, oral Kamehameha. Eight, <laughs> Yeah, and she she blasts that evil entity just as it's about to enter enter the atmosphere, and stops it dead in its tracks. It turns into this inert giant rock. 62 miles from the Earth, which I looked it up, that's a quarter of the distance as it is from the Earth to the space station. That thing is like solidly in the atmosphere. So it would be like a big gravitational problem probably? Well, it'd have to either be traveling extraordinarily fast to maintain its altitude, which would probably also mean it would still be a fireball because it would just be an orbiting fireball that's right. like ablating from all the energy from the atmosphere. Uh-huh. Or it would just still be falling from gravity. This movie defies physics, Zach. We've established that. (laughs) (laughs) Tossing boxes through the air that spin and then don't spin. Stopping giant moon-sized entities. You know, pretty much the same thing. Yeah. Maybe maybe that's one of the things of the fifth element. She can just do that. She can just have a little field bubble of defied physics. Yes. That's that's her power. That's why her genes are so good. So the movie ends with... The president wanting to come personally thank Corbin and Lilu for saving the earth. And I guess in the interim of the last scene and now, they've gone back to specifically the lab where she was regenerated. They're inside the regenerator generating a baby. (laughs) They're making the sixth element. (laughs) The lab tech goes over to like see if they're ready and, and introduce them to the president. And it's just like, oh, fuck. Luckily, they're saved by a phone call from Corbin's mom. And the president tries to like congratulate Mrs. and Dallas, thank her. But she's like, once again, unsufferable. <laughs> and so like he kind of gives a like disgusted look at the phone and hands it off to his general. And we fade to credits with her complaining about, about how she's worthless to everyone. <laughs> So, Zach, into the post-review section of our beloved pod. Yes, post-plot. I assume that you like this movie, but I am almost certain you don't like it as much as I did. What did you think of it, Zach? I will start off by saying I enjoyed it. It's a good time. This movie is a good time. I think I went into it with the wrong mindset that it would be a masterpiece, and it's not. That's my fault. Well, I mean, you know, it's it's a... You haven't seen it in a long time, and it's a movie that's very near and dear to your heart, and it's hard to separate like movie issues because you look past all those things when it's your favorite, whatever it is. There's a specific reason why I felt that way, which I'll talk about on my turn. But, you know, I enjoyed the movie. I like eccentric movies generally up to a point, and this movie is definitely that. But I also have a lot of like problems with the movie. The first thing I want to know, and I want to get your take on, is... Like, this movie is this guy's brainchild and worked on it for 20 years, made nine years to make it. Like I mentioned, there's so many little mini plots going on that are kind of confusing. Like, there's the scene with where they flamethrow parasites out of the landing gear from the shuttle to Flotsam Paradise. 
what is the diva? There was a kind of throwaway scene where the great evil was like sucking in all the communication satellites. There was no ramification of that in later parts of the movie. Okay, so the parasites and the landing gear, it's like a solution they created for a problem they had, which was how do they get Vito Cornelius on the shuttle? And around that same time, Vito had like, he got onto the runway as the shuttle's about to take off. And so he gets up in there somehow. The switch to that scene, some of these were very jagged. This one in particular, that makes me think like this idea of the universe is so big, it shouldn't just be contained in this movie because it only harms the story. Mm. That was my thought. Like it needs to be, I think, two movies, maybe three, or hell, a TV series. I don't know. (laughs) It kind of has the vibe of like a book series that's all condensed down into one movie and they try to do like service to the fans by including little little snippets from the books that to people that watch the movie are kind of thrown off guard because like, where did that even come from? Except there aren't books. <laughs> right. I also got to wonder, I think this movie is seemingly lauded for its campiness, that it's done well and it's like meant to be campy. Is it though? Can we give it credit for tastefully being campy? Did it try to do that? Like did this guy who's, this is like the culmination of what was basically his life's work did he intend for it to be campy like this or was this like it was just made kind of poorly you think i feel like it was it was put forth so well that it had to be intentional if it wasn't it was a heck of a fluke luke (laughs) because (laughs) it is consistently funny in the way that it does it the way it makes you feel as you watch it is kind of like that playful campiness aside from like the serious like world's world saving bits you know so I think it had to be intentional. This movie strikes me as like having the fleshed out, lived in, as you describe, quality of like a Star Wars universe or a Star Trek universe. Mm-hmm. But it's all condensed down into a two hour thing and they try to squeeze all these things, which it's fun. Like, yeah. I think it's a fun experiment to do that. But I wish that this was something more. Because it leaves so many like unturned stones that I just want to see more of. I couldn't agree with you more there. Another thing that, I mean, I harped on so much, representation of women in the movie. It's so poor. I mean, I think it gets credit for having like a female lead in Lilu, mm-hmm. But a lot of that work is kind of undone in my mind at the end. Because when it comes time for her to shine, she's incapable of doing it without the man. She can't mm. do her job unless she has his love. Yeah. And it, it's just kind of a neuter for how badass of a statement they could have made using her as like, she's the lead actor and just ran with it instead of being ultimately dependent on Corbin. But throughout the movie, I wrote down a list of all the women other than Lilu that show up. So there's Zorg's receptionist, one woman in the president's situation room, the McDonald's window clerk, Corbin's mom, Major Iceborg, <laughs> just a whole class of the female flight attendants, and the diva. And that's it. That's all the women that are in the movie. It's, it's an extraordinarily male-dominant movie. A lot of the men are very effeminate next to Corbin. He's the badass former military meat popsicle. <laughs> and then they put him next to Ruby Rod. They put him next to the kind of older military guy that's the president's right-hand man. They put him next to a few of the henchmen. They put him next to all these people who are just kind of like 
just not on not his as level. masculine. He's he is like the ultimate machismo symbol of the movie, mm-hmm. and everyone else is kind of lesser than. And then there's very little female representation, which I'm not sure what this movie is trying to say, like what the theme of the movie is, but it feels very like a very bleak future for women. It didn't seem like there was a statement made of like, this should be avoided. It's just a very chauvinistic future that wasn't commented on. And that was a big thing for me that I didn't really care for. I got you. But overall, I still enjoyed the movie. Critically, it's not great, I don't think. (laughs) But it's a fun movie to just throw on and like have a couple laughs and enjoy like the really zany sci-fi world that was built. Do you think that they felt that in casting Mila Djokovic as a female co-star that that was enough to justify? Do you think that was their thought? Like, that should be inclusive enough for the female part. Or do you just think that it was the bleak sci-fi future that was envisioned? Well, I guess that depends on if that was the choice that they made. That would mean Luke Besson, the director's original script, had the fifth element being a man. And it was so chauvinistic, the studio said, okay, we need to have some more. So I don't know. It it goes back to the original script, I guess. This may be insight fuel. So Luke Besson was married to, at the time, the woman who played the diva. Oh, okay. I think the person they originally got to play the diva backed out. His wife decided to step up and, and take the role. During the filming and shortly thereafter, Luke Besson, probably in bonding with Mila Djokovic on that the divine language that he created for the movie, Luke Besson ended up leaving his wife for Mila Djokovic very shortly after the filming of this movie. So presumably there was some infidelity going on there, whether emotional or physical. Hmm. And I wonder if that kind of lack of character on the director's part could be part of the reason why we see a overarching misogyny throughout the movie. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I don't know if he still is a prolific director today. I don't know what else he directed, but he's I know a bunch he, of stuff. Okay. He, he did all the Transporter movies. He he did uh, Leon the Professional. He did Valerian the City of a Thousand Planets. Well, I mean, I guess it's not a fair question to ask because Hollywood isn't exactly known for its gender equity. That's true. In fact, it's more of a, a consistent theme that it is unequal. Yeah. There's no way this isn't a choice. This list of female characters is extraordinarily short. So disregarding the flight attendants for a second, Corbin's mom, she has a lot of lines, but it's like the nagging mom stereotype. Right. Major Iceborg, wordless. The McDonald's window clerk just looks at her boobs. That's it. <laughs> the woman in the present situation room, I think maybe kind of whispers something to him, but I don't know that we hear it. And Zorg's receptionist says, hi, Zorg's office. How can I help you? And that's it. There is one other female character you're forgetting, that being the diva's assistant who talks to Lilu very briefly. But it's like... Lil- oh, yes. You're right. She has like two lines. Right. So that's another female in the movie. And she says like, the diva will meet you in her room later. What about the woman who brings Corbin into, into his room? She, though, okay. was, is a great example of, like, the over-sexualization of the female yes. characters. Yes, another, like, this isn't moving the needle. <laughs> no, it's in fact, it's moving it in the wrong direction. Yes, <laughs> it's another female that has a line, but it's someone who's speaking as part of their job in customer service, and it's, it's oh, yeah, she's over-sexualized female. Customer service lady, yeah. And it's clearly a choice. It's not like, oh, well, like... There's you know. one other female character I'm remembering now, and this is, this is just going to add to your point. Whenever Ruby Rod is coming into the opera house and like introducing 
over his radio show all the different like noble people there. One of the people is like the princess of some country or something, and he's like, ah, yes, the lovely princess, whatever, and I have a recording of her voice right here, and it's just like her moaning. Ugh, he effectively worse. says over the radio Much that worse. he slept with her. Yeah. Does she ever appear on screen? Yeah, she's on screen a couple times. She doesn't say oh, okay. anything. She like waves at Ruby Ruby Rod, but it's just such a uncomfortable choice. These are all things that I was very willing to overlook as a teenager. <laughs> so this is this is where the the paint of nostalgia has worn thin. So yeah, the movie is fun, and I feel comfortable saying that I like it for the aspect, but really, like, do I think that the movie is worthy of? significant praise no i'll say that it's enjoyable and it's fun but kind of more on a superficial level if you don't look too deep but that's not to say i won't watch it again it has a lot of rewatch potential it's one of those movies that i think it's just got a very fun vibe to it Mm -hmm. big lebowski is one of those movies for me i love the big lebowski the story is kind of silly and almost forgettable sometimes but like it's just got a vibe to me that i can just put on and just chill Mm-hmm. This movie is kind of that way. I can just put it on and it's just fun. But it's got major problems that are hard to look past. From the issues we talked about to like some of the plot issues we mentioned throughout that like it's a very kind of tentative I like it only because it's just kind of zany and fun. Okay. So <laughs> after that uh rant, Ugh. Mitch, did you like it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I did and still very much do like this movie. It's a little bit tempered with my being an adult and recognizing the problems with it, especially after our interpretation and viewing. But I know I told you it was my favorite movie, and in some ways it still is. I think the core of it, I would say, is something that I still hold in high regard in that it's a story about life and love. But the glaring problems that you have pointed out make it very difficult for me to still give it that title. Nostalgia does go a long way. It really does, yeah. For me watching this as a kid and it meaning a lot, that was one thing. But the other thing that I wanted to mention, the reason why I think I told you it was my favorite movie was because the last time that I had watched it prior to this, I had made the mistake of having a bite of a pot brownie with a friend. As in you unwittingly took a bite of pot brownie? No, it was more so that I did not realize how fucking potent the pot brownie was. I'm sure there are many people who understand this feeling. I ate like a corner of one, and then I went to a food truck rodeo. I got so high while I was there that I had to leave. And I came home and just needed to like turn off my brain. So I put on The Fifth Element, and I watched and it. And you'd seen it before. Oh, yeah. And okay. it, it, I, I remember loving the movie and thinking it was great. And I guess it was maybe a, um, a way of my brain repairing itself and, and protecting me from being paranoid and having a bad trip. And... I remember thinking at the end of it, like, that was the greatest movie I've ever seen. It's such a perfect sci-fi plot. You know, the stakes are so high and everything about it's great. And so my uh, description of it to you was a little bit colored by that experience, I would say. That was the last time you'd seen it, That was the last time I'd seen it before you and I watched it. What is there, like a seven-year gap there? Yeah, roughly seven, seven or eight years. And so I remember watching it with you sober and at the end of it, thinking, like, I'm a little bit embarrassed that I talked this movie up so much to you. Don't get me wrong. I do still love the movie. I'm willing to look past the some of the misogynistic stuff going on with it. Not entirely, but for the sake of me still enjoying it and loving it through a lens of nostalgia, 
I'm willing to look past it. It still has really great comedy that hits really well throughout. The progression is awesome, like the changing between the scenes with little bits of overlap and like the back and forth. The writing and the direction as far as the plot and the shooting and everything goes was really good. The music was awesome. Yeah. The soundtrack fits so perfectly with it and it really adds to that sci-fi future world aesthetic that is being built. It's thought-provoking too. The subtleties and the stuff going on with Lilu that I never really thought about until more recently with her not just being a person and thinking about her as a person, like she is an entity that's been created as a supreme being to be a weapon, but she also has to be nurtured. I get where your argument of like, that's just kind of further shitting on women, but I think it's more than that. I think you have to look at her as this being that has been created for a purpose, but she's still a living being. Without the context of goodness, she can't function, more so than her just being like weak in the psyche because she's a woman. It's, I, don't, I don't think that was it at all. I think it's easy to, to frame it that way with everything else the movie did, but I would say, <laughs> I, I would say uh, that it was more so that there's something deeper going on there. And I, I would compound this with the fact that the diva, as she was dying, said to Corbin that, yeah, she's a supreme being and she's a weapon, but she needs love. I don't think that it was even Corbin's love that she needed. I think it was just that she needed love. She needed to know that there's something worth living for and that the world is not just darkness and that there's a ton of good in the world. And I think that she could have gained that through any number of other vehicles throughout the movie, but because it's an action movie in the 90s, it's going to be romance. Well, through that lens, then, it makes her seem extraordinarily self-centered, if she's going to let an entire earth die because she doesn't feel like she has anything to live for. Sure, I guess. But I, I see where you're coming from, but I also think I, I think I see what the writer was trying to do as well. And the last thing I want to touch on is the world building and the world that was created is still like, I would say my favorite part is just how kooky and fun it is. Totally understand that. It man. feels It just feels so lived in and so real. You showed me that one matte painting that was used for like a three-second establishing shot of yeah. like a spaceship entering New York. It's a painting of New York City, maybe like five miles away from New York City or something, kind of elevated. You can actually find this matte painting online, and it's so detailed. You can zoom in and basically see like an individual person's window. It's so incredibly different from... New York, as you know it today, there's like water, the water level's much lower. So the Statue of Liberty is like way above the waterline. It's just these like mounds of skyscrapers and like buildings kind of into the face of the earth yeah. that was water. That picture made me realize just how much thought and building went into the world. Just to loop back again to the misogyny thing <laughs> with like, the water level being low, everything's elevated. There's like literally a layer of fog over the surface of the earth that is uninhabitable. It's it's implied. Do you think that it's as much a thought of it being just the 90s and we're going to sexualize all the women? Or is it just that that is the dystopian future that is painted? Because if you look at Zorg, he is at the head of like a humongous corporation and he can fire a million people with a snap of his fingers. Do you think that it's more so like a realistic take? If you ignore like the Me Too movement and LGBTQ rights and stuff like that happening, is this the future that we get where that's just the way it is? Like women work in the service industry pretty much exclusively 
It's almost like a dystopian future that follows like 1950s and 60s classification of gender. So if he was 16 when he wrote this, this would have been the year, say, like 1970 or He was born right? in 59. So 75. I mean, obviously, there's been a lot of progress in that regard made since the 70s. But I'd say even in 1975, the status of the women's rights movement was still much better than it is in this movie. So like significant regression was made, I would say. I might be like really kind of discrediting how much of a struggle it was in the 70s to be a woman. But I guess I'm just highlighting how depressing of a feature that this movie makes it for women. I think if it was a progressive commentary as a cautionary tale of if you ignore this, this is the feature, there would have been some piece of dialogue or writing or a scene that would have clued us into that. But there was nothing. That's true. I think it's safe to say it was just the expected over-sexualization of female characters in a 90s action movie. But this is like egregious. I think maybe it's just that the costuming and the lewdness of the females that were typecasted as that was very loud compared to the ones who weren't. Not to say it's not questionable. It's something I can't really get past. Did I like it? Yes, but there's this huge glaring issue. Zach's dish, a giant hot dog. <laughs> How phallic is your dish? Uh, it's quite. <laughs> I give awesome. it. Yes, it, it's we'll, quite phallic. We'll get there. Well, I think we've pretty well beaten that horse into the ground. Also, I am sorry for casting this haze over one of your favorite movies but i think this goes to show when you come to the dish you get the truth (laughs) (laughs) yeah i'm a little disappointed not in you not in myself in the movie but i'm still not disappointed to know that you have probably chosen a true hero i have could you tell me about that You might be able to guess, I can tell you about him. (laughs) Statistically speaking, it is almost certainly going to be a him. What if I told you that both of my true hero candidates that I considered were women? Really? Mm -hmm. Wow. You know, I actually thought about making it a woman just to... Out of spite? (laughs) Yeah, just to give them a little bit more of the spotlight Mm -hmm. in this movie. Because God, like, they really deserved it. But... Move on. Let's Let's keep going. My... My true hero is Mr. Kim. Oh, nice. Okay. In this world that I think pretty much all of the... Man, I'm I'm really about like curating lists here. But I think all of the non-main character, everyday, ordinary citizens we see are pretty washed up people. There was the drug Mm -hmm. addict. Mm -hmm. There was the guy next to Corbin Dallas that got... Body snatched by the Goomba aliens. The smoke you guy. So in this world, it seems like you're kind of either a have or a have not. 99% of people are have nots. You could totally double down on that just in Corbin himself because he is like a decorated military veteran and he lives in a 50 square foot apartment as a cab driver. Right. And so there's not a whole lot of happiness going around. It seems like everybody could use, if not a friend, just a friendly voice. And there is nobody in this movie like that, like Mr. Kim. Oh, you're so right, man. He is such a beacon of light in this movie and humor. I mean, you recapped it, but he's just like, yeah, you've got two pieces of bad news in a row. There can't be a third. There is a (laughs) universal law that this has to be good news. And 
I will read this letter for you if you don't want to. <laughs> you are fired. <laughs> <laughs> so great. And I forgot to mention at the bottom of his uh, note that he got fired, it said for and on behalf of Zorg. Zorg, his corporation also owns the cab company he works for. Oh, Another argument for that would have been really cool to see like what else Zorg had his fingers in. Right. I digress. Mr. Kim is just a floating distributor of happiness and smiles. And he's got this badass boat for that reason. Those reasons. He's my true hero. I think that's an admirable true hero, Zach. It's very good. Admirable, he says. I mean that in a complimentary (laughs) sort of way. (laughs) You said that it Jog deja vu. I think you said that for at least one more true hero. Oh, did I? Maybe you said it for Dish, too. Maybe what I'll say Um, instead is that uh, when thinking of one, I wanted to do Mr. Kim, but I couldn't find a way to justify it. And I admire that you really did find a good way to do that. In that he's like the shining light of of hope in this this dark world where there's always some like titty holes cut in all of the (laughs) customer service uniforms. Yeah, uh, his happiness and aura were just contagious. What about you? Who's your true hero? I think I'm going to choose the what I would consider my true hero underdog because I was really debating between two and hoping that hearing yours would help me decide, and it has not. I'm just going to go on and go with this one, which I think is still deserved. Corbin's mother is my true hero. Okay. And I have a very literal reason why and also just the usual reason why. True Hero is the segment we do with kind of a wacky side character, and I think that she is definitely a wacky side character that comes out of nowhere because she always calls at an unexpected time. She calls in the middle of Corbin's lunch when he's just trying to live his life right before all the shit hits the fan. She calls whenever he gets to the the suite out of the blue, and then she calls at the very end and ends up on the phone with the president. Those are like fun, wacky things going on with her there, and just her her complaining is really funny, but... The reason why she's my true hero is because if she had not called Corbin and interrupted him from lighting his last cigarette, the world would have ended because he's literally sitting there with his box of matches and his cigarette trying to light it. And she distracts him from actually having that smoke. She distracts him for just long enough that the general shows up and he ends up not being able to light that last match. Oh, it was his last match. It was his last match. Oh, so. Wow. Because that happened, she effectively saved the world. Wow. Yeah. It's it's very like elbow to get to your thumb, but... What a find. Nice call. Yeah. Corbin's mom. Wow. That feels like another very small point that they purposefully inserted that is hard to miss, but a powerful pivot in the story. Admirable true hero, Mitch. Oh, thanks, buddy. Well, the next part is our namesake the dishes there has been a a little bit of communication that maybe the dish is an afterthought but know that going into any movie that we watch we are from the get-go thinking about how does this movie feel in terms of if i were to eat it what would it be like (laughs) (laughs) so the dish is our namesake segment where we review the movie of course and then compare it to a dish We both think when people watch movies, there's a lot of inherent just feelings generated. And it's a little bit abstract, but we are kind of re-envisioning the movie if it were in food form and what dish does it remind us of? Hence, blending movie and food culture together. Indeed. And the dish could be for virtually any justifiable reason. We have no rules on this podcast. (laughs) Mitch, what is your dish? 
My dish for the fifth element is Vietnamese pho. Interesting. Okay. Pho is one of my favorite foreign foods. I, I love it. It's delicious. Uh, we actually have a pho place really close to our house that I frequent, and I think that's probably part of my influence here. But I was able to, I think, come up with some metaphors for the movie that really justify it. On the surface, it is a pretty modern dish. I think pho only really came into the fore in food culture in the last 50 years or so. In Vietnam, it was popularized like mid-50s. But since then, it's become like the unofficial dish of Vietnam. Most people have heard of pho in first world countries. And it's been a very popular street food that's been ingrained in their culture and now cultures around the world. It is pretty simple. It's made from a spiced beef broth, uh, thinly sliced beef, usually like eye round or top round, and very thin rice noodles. And then there are various toppings that are added to it to finish it off. Usually the way it's prepared is you add the beef to this piping hot broth raw, and then the broth cooks the meat. You add your your rice noodles. The rice noodles and the broth are prepared separately because the rice noodles are fairly delicate, and if they stay in the broth for too long, they get a little mushy. So the toppings are highly variable, but they add a lot to the dish. They can be fresh herbs like Thai basil or cilantro, bean sprouts, lime wedges, peanuts, tons of different sauces you'll put on, on pho, like fish sauce, sriracha, gochujang, hoisin sauce. But they all kind of add to it and change the flavor of the dish. And so you can really prepare it to your your preference. Mm-hmm. To explain the metaphor, for me, the broth is the setting. It is the world that is built in the fifth element. And it is the liquid for the dish that the rest of it is immersed in. It is full of all these subtle spices that really add to the overall flavor and experience of it. And I think that in that way, the broth is the world that has been built, this like awesome sci-fi world of the fifth element. The beef is Corbin Dallas, both literally because he's like, you know, the meat popsicle, uh, the, the action hero. But he is also, he has been immersed in and affected by the world that he lives in in the same way that the beef is cooked in pho. He is a product of the world that he lives in. He's jaded. He's a little bit cringy. Uh, <laughs> he lives in south, southern New York as a cab driver. The noodles are Lilu, the rice noodles. They've only recently been added to the broth in the same way that she's just been brought into this dystopian future as this like entity that who knows how ancient she is. And she is drastically affected by it. At the same time, she goes mushy in the film whenever she's overly affected by the world she's living in, that being the broth, and needs the meat as her counterpart in order to complete her and make her whole. Sort of the same way that you get the the nice flavor profile of the noodles and the beef. And the toppings are all the fun elements that the fifth element offers. They're all kind of sprinkled in to make it the movie that it is. The antagonist, the lore, the plot, all the humor and action, the spiciness, I guess you could say, in the uh, scantily clad ladies. Pho would not be complete without them, but this movie also wouldn't be. And they each add their own kind of uniqueness to it, each of those elements to the movie, but also as toppings for pho. And create unique flavors that come together. It can be a near perfect dish for you if you prepare it the way you like it. Not everybody likes pho. For some people, there's no way to combine all those elements to make a really delicious dish. And I think that this is a little bit of a stretch. Originally, I wanted to find a dish that was more polarized, but when the fifth element came out, it was very polarized, the reception. Like, people either liked it or hated it. There were people who would leave the theater mid-movie because they were like, what the fuck is this? And I I expect maybe that's how Pho was received at first, but I don't really know. 
That is my dish, Vietnamese pho. That is a great dish. I agree with a lot of it. I think it lines up really well with your take on the movie. I love the direction that you went with getting detailed. I like getting detailed with the ingredients. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the idea. I had the episode with um, the mummy. I even compared it to a specific restaurant. Places. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I love it. Mine is... Oh, you don't have any like criticisms or... Is my dish sexist enough? I don't think it's sexist enough. I think more toxic masculinity needs to be thrown in there somehow. Just throw some hot dogs in there. That's okay because mine has it. Let's hear. I I would like to hear your almost certainly phallic dish. All right. So mine is actually less phallic than you think. Mine is less of a dish and more an amalgam of just random shit. That being said, I'd much rather have pho than mine. Okay. Your dish than mine. So my dish is... Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. <laughs> a nice, juicy ribeye steak. What guy doesn't love a ribeye steak? What guy doesn't love a ribeye steak smothered in ketchup? <laughs> Almost nobody. So ribeye steak with ketchup, a side of mashed potatoes. That's a classic guy meal, isn't it? Steak and potatoes. I think I see where this is going. Potatoes. It's got that little, you know crater in the middle where you put the gravy but instead of gravy it's just a whey protein slurry (laughs) milk and whey protein Mm, guy meal and then my favorite style of fry curly fries goes with a great pint of steel reserve beer most masculine meal i can maybe think of (laughs) but it's not all just dicks and testosterone in this movie there is a little bit of feminine side of guys so as a dessert to represent also just how weird this movie is, just a bowl of only pink starbursts. (laughs) And that is my dish for the fifth element. (laughs) I'm offended. (laughs) No, I'm not really. I get it. I do. I did not think of the fifth element through the lens of misogyny when I made my dish. And, uh, I'm glad for it, but also, uh, you know, I totally see where you're coming from. My dish is a nice combination of toxic masculinity. It's, I mean, I, who doesn't like a steak and potatoes? Like for me, sci-fi movies are like foundational. I love them. I am really into the sci-fi genre, but this is kind of zany and campy in a fun way, but also like at times it's a little odd. And then the misogyny just takes like the foundational meal and then just kind of like really bastardizes it. I feel like you got to a point watching it where all you could see was misogyny. Is that what you said? Yeah, kind of. Yeah, a little bit. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So it's just a very twisted take on a a classic meal, which for me, sci-fi is classic, but this is, it's good, but there are a lot of problems with it. Much like steak with ketchup all over and whey protein mashed potatoes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I would say that I very much enjoyed your dish. Hopefully as much as you enjoyed the movie. I mean, I enjoyed the movie quite a lot. It's a fun movie. Yeah. I, I can't take that away from it. Well, that was fun. I'm kind of glad we're through it, if I'm honest. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry if I made you uncomfortable. I'm just, I've just been sitting here like squirming in my seat, recalling how I lorded this movie as such a, a great one to you over and over again. I mean, I also might be a little harsh in my takes. I don't know. Hey, man, there's nothing wrong with that. You, you, just, you, respect, you respect the opposite sex, and I think that's great. 
as and I also do. <laughs> also, <laughs> two also. <laughs> you respect women and good for you. <laughs> it's a quality not everyone in this room has. <laughs> What's next, man? We got to figure out what movie is going to be episode... 10 i guess so so the next episode should be the last episode of season one i guess if that's what we're doing yeah we are i think that's what we agreed on i got the the list of our potential 90s movie candidates why don't you go ahead and pull out those then their dice i am pulling them out man how many we got we have got we get my bag of many sided dice Uh, 26 movies i just so happen to have a 26 sided die here all right i've rolled a 14 Galaxy Quest. Oh. <laughs> oh, man. For what will be the final installment of our season one. Ooh, that'll be the most comedy heavy one. The that 90s we've done. classic spoof, also very sci fi, Galaxy Quest. Fuck. I love it. I am ready. All right, y'all. Well, we will be back at you next time with Galaxy Quest on the next episode of The Dish. Wait, before we leave, we should thank all of our sponsors. Indeed, we should. Sponsors. Exactly. All right, see ya. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, well, really, though, we should thank the very few people who do listen to our podcast. We very much appreciate you taking time out of your day that I'm sure is busy to listen to our shenanigans. Yep. <laughs> Um, as always, we would really appreciate it if you drop us a line, let us know how we're doing. Or if you want to suggest something, like uh, another movie that we should review, or maybe you have an idea for a segment. How do you do that, Mitch? How do you get in touch with us? You can reach us at dishingthroughdecades at gmail.com. That is through, T-H-R-O-U-G-H. You can reach us there. Send us some feedback or you know, tell us you hate it. Either way, we'd love to hear something from someone. Especially our Albanian follower. (laughs) We're putting you on a blast, Mr. Albania. Indeed. Well, we will see you on the next episode, the last episode of season one of The Dish, where we will pretend to make dishes out of movies and then make dishes out of movies for real. (laughs) Much to everyone's surprise. By Grabthar's Hammer, Zach, it's been a pleasure. Indeed it has, Mitch. (laughs) 